0: Is it a rescue attempt? Might be. Yes. Wednesday, Wednesday, Wednesday,
1: Wednesday, 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 Wednesday night's alright. Hey, isn't that supposed to be Saturday? What day is it today?
2: Wednesday.
0: Exactly.
1: Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm uh. Oh, there's all the. We're back with all the. Sorry, actually. Yeah, all the. There's just fighting. I am Glenn Falconstein from Falcon. He's screen. back! Yes, where, where, where am I? What am I doing here? What, where, who, Why are you
3: in Ireland?
1: Yeah, I. Why well, I like, well, my heart is still in Ireland. Okay. I love <laughs> Ireland. i are watching, basically, Are we reviewing Irish films for the rest of the year. The Irish Film Festival is coming up, and Very that's soon. what I really want to talk about, because I just missed the Dingle Film Festival. Dingle is one of the coolest towns <laughs> in the world.
3: <laughs> for those who haven't been following the soap opera of Film Fight Club, Glenn has been in Ireland for most of the year. And, and uh, yeah, we, we
0: took on the duties of, of being Glenn. We held the force. Basically being yeah. Glenn for a while and realized that Glenn does it better. So we've given up. Yeah, I, on being Glenn. Yeah, it's so, it was so, so welcome back. Yeah, it's so nice to be
3: back. It's so nice to
1: see your beautiful faces. Oh, oh my god, thank Sydney. you. Also, Glenn has a spanky new haircut.
3: Yeah, if, if we could transmit <laughs> the image through the medium of radio, Glenn looks like much more zany. Yeah. Professor, zany. at I, the moment,
0: I, I said he looked like George Costanza. He doesn't
3: look like George Costanza uh, uh, you, actually, from Seinfeld. It's um, actually not a heck. <laughs> I just didn't
1: cut my hair. <laughs> more like, <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, I, I was writing, Matt Groening had a comic earlier in my I, I read it in my life, and he said, "Don't trust anything ever described as zany." So does anyone out there, <laughs>
3: no, you Don't can trust, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very trust- at least you can't. You can't, can trust Glenn, but you can't trust his hair.
0: Yeah, zany, yeah. and the other word which I would say is quirky. Quirky is my other pet it's peeve. Dugs, yeah, yeah, that's just. Like, I was going to
3: say, it's toxic, but toxic is another word ooh, you can't trust. No, no, <laughs> yeah,
0: toxic is toxic. Wow. Yep. Quir- quirky, I like. Only toxic. T- <laughs> quirky was like word of word of <laughs> the <laughs> year. Britney Spears, two thousand and five. Right. Toxic, not
3: quirky. I don't know if it ever was actually, but it was to me. Quirky <laughs> is like Little Miss Sunshine. Uh, oh, thank you for smoking. Yeah. Yeah, which had yeah. you know, Tully you know, for that record. Or, so all or, Jason or, or films. any
0: kind of female comedian is referred to as quirky. quirky. Yeah,
3: okay. yeah. It, I, I love Tina Fey. She's so quirky.
0: <laughs> We can't, we can't, we can't just call them funny, can we? It's just horrible. Yeah. We
3: can call
0: comedians. We should, no, we, we should. Is saying. Oh, I know, I, I know what saying. <laughs> and, oh,
3: hang on. Okay, things are getting misconstrued here. <laughs> no, I no, know,
2: I
1: know. that's not what that's at all. And but thank you for the compliment. I do like quirky. But thank you for I would, smoking, uh, and, yeah, Jason don't, 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 don't smoke. It's not what we're saying at all. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's no heavy <laughs> smoke fog in the studio. That, there really isn't. None of us smoke.
0: I love but, how like Glenn was supposed to be the arbiter of making things more organized, and we've started with. The most rambly opening. We've uh, of the brought show. the chaos. Well, no, let's let's like the-
1: what we've done with the place. Um, yeah, it's actually much. Oh my god, the desks. It looks different. It's different. To ser is different.
3: Yeah, too yeah, it's uh, it, we've got new equipment. Um, it, the world has changed, and Glenn is desperately clinging on <laughs> <laughs> to old
0: certainties. I mean, yeah. just like one nation. I mean, <laughs> wow, being compared to, I mean, in the past two minutes, I've okay. been compared
1: to One Nation and George Costanza. <laughs> great start. It's lovely to be back. I may as well introduce the panel at this point because we have with us freelance writer and critic, Varun Nehru. Hello, hello. And Sydney filmmaker, Chris Evans. Yo! So we have a what a packed show. We're going to be talking about our top 10 lists of 2018. Now the reason that we've left this a little delayed is that we like to reflect and oh so yes
0: I have been in Ireland. Yeah,
3: we wanted to wait until the ringleader Glenn Falkenstein was back
0: before we finally <laughs>
3: gave you our top of 2018 list. And also
0: only- like actually watched some movies because we hadn't watched them all. Yep.
1: And I had to catch up on stuff on the plane, so I'm actually glad we waited till I got
0: back. And we love you, Glenn. We actually do. It's sometimes not obvious, but just wanted to make it clear. We do love Glenn.
1: I love you too. Oh my God. It's been, it's, it's
3: actually nice getting the band back together.
1: It, it is. is yeah. But we are ultimately film fight club. We, yeah. we will continue
3: the fighting, we promise. Film harmony and We'll Plan. see about that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. We'll see about that when the top 10 lists come out and you can judge for yourself how divergent our tastes are. We will also be talking about John and Peele's new
1: thriller, horror film Us, which is in cinemas tomorrow. Yep. And But first, before we get into us, we want to talk about the big film news of the week, which is The Simpsons made another correct prediction in that Disney (laughs) have bought out and overtaken Fox. There's been a massive merger. It was
3: finalized. It was actually finalized about an hour before we went to air last week. So we're a bit slow off the bat. But yeah, man, we were just talking before about clinging on to old certainties and news like this makes me pretty uncomfortable, uh, you know, as a pretty old school Cinephile, just to see 20th Century Fox. I think to a lot of people is probably, along with Warner Brothers, it's like the most iconic Hollywood studio. The the fact that it's essentially no more is pretty shocking. That it's become a division of Walt Disney.
1: I think there's a great irony in that I remember when the X-Men films came out and we were talking about, wow, what if all these characters under this circumstance could be together in one big ensemble? And now we've sort of had that aversion of that with the Marvel films, it's Well, are excited happen. about that.
3: Yeah, you're going to get to have uh, the X-Men in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. With Was Spider-Man. it worth it? But yeah. it's, it's
1: more than, and that's okay in and of itself, but it means that all the films are going to be following a relatively similar
3: formula which because the studio do have their strategy well the problem is you know I don't care that much about the Marvel Cinematic Universe but what Glenn is talking about will apply to everything you know (laughs) all of the Fox films are going to be following the Disney formula as, as far as I see it you know You have, instead of having two different visions of what gets greenlit, you've essentially got one overarching one. Yes, you'll have an individual studio head for 20th Century Fox, but it'll be someone put in place to follow the directives of the Walt Disney Company, which are extremely brand-based. I think Disney looks at this and they say, okay, we've got X-Men, we've now got The Simpsons, we've got Avatar. It's about like the big brands, um, and I think it's ultimately going to mean less diversity in the entertainment and less voices getting out there. Um, Already, Fox 2000 Pictures has been shuttered, which is the division that makes mid-budget films at Fox. Searchlight? Yeah, Searchlight will continue, but I wonder for how long or in what form, because Disney doesn't really care so much about prestige films in the way that other studios do. Disney almost never has films competing in the Oscars. Will they see Searchlight as a way to expand into that, uh, or will it just be, you know, shuttered down and made into
0: a studio for making content for their streaming service? Talking about Prestige Cinema, the other big hypocritical news of the week, Steven Spielberg launching Apple's new uh, movie service. Just after he He launched his campaign against Netflix as the board of directors' academy. Everyone thought thought that, uh, you know, he's just you know, being the old guard and saying Netflix is bad and standing up for old school cinema. But hello, hello, all that was just a stunt just so that he could launch Apple, the competing probably, I
3: I reckon Spielberg's just in that for the money. I think he genuinely does believe what he was saying about cinemas being the way to go. But Uh um, it's interesting you bring up streaming right after we're talking about the Disney Fox purchase because I think the reason why Fox has been purchased Disney is partly so that they can pump up their IP repertoire as Disney prepared to do battle with Netflix and in an attempt to control the future of entertainment as they see it I'm sure the streaming game Disney is launching a big streaming service or multiple soon and I think since they don't have the years and years head start that Netflix had I think they want to own as many things as possible.
1: Yes, but Netflix had the start of the prestige campaign but we have to remember that Disney actually have billions of <coughs> dollars in the bank, Netflix are still running Netflix. at a huge deficit That's given right. the amount of content they're producing and that they are relatively, at least in this stage, new company.
3: Netflix need to become profitable to win this fight. Um, I'm hope. I'm not the biggest fan of Netflix, but it, I would, I'm definitely hoping they come out on top in this because I think Netflix have shown that their strategy is about funding a diverse uh, platform. You know, different sorts of entertainment, very different genres represented both in their film and their TV. Um, Whereas Disney, I think, is very brand-oriented these days. And from what I've heard about their streaming service, they're planning to double down in that direction. For example, you know, now we've got a Star Wars TV show.
1: And people will go to buy... The streaming service because they want to see Frozen, which is no longer available
0: on Netflix. But but even then, I mean, you can just see the changing patterns of streaming cinema and how that's impacting Disney and Marvel and and uh, Netflix because you know Stan, for example, is pushing really hard. The fact that they now have the entirety of Marvel, uh, you well, know, I think the reason why... in, in their kind of thing, which you can now binge, and that that is like people but you shouldn't, who've, <laughs> yeah, people who basically you know grown up in. Post two thousands for them that is prestige cinema, which is scary. Oh, think man, about yeah. Yeah, but I mean, thing, I mean, there are a lot of people who do believe that, non-ironically, which the, is
3: film snob club. No, but but seriously, I know there are it's better sad. films it's made in the past fifteen years. The thing about um, the Stan deal, though, is I think that's just an attempt to weaken Netflix. That you know, the enemy of my, my enemy is my friend. So anything I agree, that means, and that's what that's if, why if I feel we, like yeah, the if whole Netflix thing is yeah, if yeah. we reduce the amount of money that Netflix is is making just by reducing their revenue flow from Australia, then that's Good for our ultimate plan for world domination. Because I think the Disney streaming service won't launch in Australia for a long time. It's just anything they can do now to undermine, undermine Netflix.
1: And just sidle in. So that is the still developing, still growing, still speculative news that we're going to be following for the months and years to come. But for now, we are talking about Jordan Peele's new horror thriller, Us, which is in cinemas, cinemas tomorrow. It is the follow-up to, I think, f- maybe our favorite film from two years ago, Get Out?
3: Not mine the- and uh, i I'll, I'll talk about <laughs> the new measures I've imposed upon our voting process for the top film of the year so as to stop the debacle yeah, of Get out being declared the best film of the year you' really record high- i don't I don't hate get out I'm just my hatred for us is bleeding through to that film yeah but it, it was- wasn't as good as you guys said it was it it was good. Mm. But not that good. Yeah, that's true. And that's how you could fairly describe oh, it. Oh, now it comes oh, out. Oh, <laughs> wow,
1: wow. Uh, now, in retrospect, it us. Isn't that, isn't that great? And it isn't that great. Get out. Get out, people. Get out. Get, get out. out. Get out. Get out. Yeah. So it is written, directed, and produced by Jordan Peele. It is his sophomore feature, his second feature. It is starring Lupita Nyong'o. The basic premise is that Lupita Nyong'o, as an adult... returns to Santa Monica where, and we see through flashbacks and a sequence at the beginning of the film, she experienced a traumatic event in her childhood we are given precious little details about this decades later she brings her family a husband and two children and one day she notices there seems to be certain coincidences things start to happen and then as heavily featured in the promotional material a strange family appear holding hands in the driveway and in the words of the young boy mom it looks like us and things spiral from there this film had And I think will suffer, I think still unfairly, despite its faults, from a huge weight of expectation. It comes off Get Out, which won fairly the best original screenplay. And this is not, in many respects, a great follow-up. It is a different film. It is a, unlike Get Out, it is not a comedy. It is not a straight comedy. It is a horror film with comedic tinge. It is much more easily definable.
0: Uh, before we get the discussion, thank you, Glenn, for teaching me what sophomore means. Yeah. I, didn't, oh, I didn't, I didn't know I what that meant.
3: At, you know, the, now the fighting's coming out. No, 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 I, no actually,
0: actually, no, not really. I, <laughs> I, I had no idea it meant second for the for the you know longest no, time. I just freshman sophomore. Actually, yeah, actually, I'm not, Junior I'm not being senior. sarcastic. That's, I actually w- did not know that. I, I, it's
3: weird. It's funny that sophomore is a weird word because it means second, but it also in, in the context of sophomoric it means something. Yeah. Well, you, yes. You I know. almost used it in my
1: review in that context, oh, but then it's, it's I realized... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I it's
3: so for I thought it's a little bit <laughs> harsh. <laughs> it's not that bad. It allows you for many
1: respects. It's not Thank you, Chris, though,
3: you disliked it a lot more than I did. I did. Um, where do we begin? Okay, first of all, Get Out had um, license to be somewhat simplistic because it was operating on the level of an allegory. It's a metaphor for racial um, dynamics in the United States, essentially. This film is not operating on that level, or at least I don't think it is working so well as a metaphor. I'll get more into that later on. Uh, So in this case, it just feels in the worst possible way like a film written by a sketch comedy writer because the characters have only depth as types, which damages your ability to empathize with them. Um, and it also, I think, takes away from some of the tension when the characters' lives are put in jeopardy. Um, the Most of the film is, um, instead of operating at in the level that worked best in Get Out, which is again, playing to the strengths of being a, a comedy writer and working as a social metaphor, um, most of this film instead plays out like what to me were the worst parts of Get Out, which were the action horror elements towards the end of the film. Um, I don't think Jordan Peele is that good a action director to um, structure most of his film around chases and jump scares. I found this actually really conventional in terms of the staging and how it played out, and I was bored pretty quickly. I feel you actually, your criticisms are far from my
1: most severe criticisms of the film, but I like to deal oh. with the film from a dramatic perspective and from a scare perspective. The. Biggest, the most important and the most interesting revelation in the film is the one that has been alluded to extensively in the promotional material and is dealt with at the conclusion beginning of the first act, beginning of the second act. There is a home invasion sequence. It is far and above the best sequence in the film. It is the only scary sequence. But
3: I feel like home invasions have been done so many times more effectively in other horror films. I don't disagree. As far as a, a home invasion thriller, I, I, I thought this was going to go into more of a psychological... Funny games esque direction it early on. It did
1: reference funny games at one point. Yeah. As it did it reference Jaws, The Shining. There's a lot of homages to classic horror films in this. Yeah.
3: But it's actually fairly straightforward. Um, like I was saying before, to me, it was mostly run from the scary jump scare man. You know, I, I didn't think this was that engaging as a B movie. I thought it was like it's a fairly pedestrian effort.
1: No, it telegraphed very far ahead how um, that particular sequence is going to play out. It did proceed to a similarly staged sequence later in the film. However, interestingly, at that point... Much more interesting one, actually. it, It was played for comedy, not drama or scares. Because by this point, there are very few actual scares left in the film. And the reason for this, I feel, is that... They were scary when we didn't know what we were facing. Immediately when we know what we were facing, it, 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 the suspense drops dramatically. Yeah, this film,
3: Get Out had a great sense of... See, this is the problem. This film, as you said, is so much under the shadow of Get Out that it's hard to stop comparing it directly when they're, they're, it feels like a similar voice, but they're quite different films in terms of how they really operate. Yeah, One is about race, one is about class on a very basic level, yeah, but then but, it's not even fair to compare them. But to get back to the Get Out comparison anyway, um, Get Out built up a lot of mystery about exactly what was going on. And this film reveals basically everything you need to know fairly quickly. It tries to build up more of a mystery, uh, but there's nothing really satisfying waiting for you at the other end of that. Um, It immediately gets into the action kind of territory. And as you say, the comedy. But um, in Get Out, at times I felt like the Impulses as a comedy director of Peel were butting up against the desire to make a horror film. There were moments when I felt like a punchline would fall in at an opportune moment and underline, and sorry, and undermine the fear that he hadn't quite worked out that balance of tones. Um, this film, I think, is more. It's not as much of an issue for me in Get Out. He probably has progressed in some directions. Like I, I, but I still felt like comedy was undermining horror. Absolutely. The husband in this... He's just he's, a comic type.
1: He's well, He has one excellent sequence when he first confronts the family, which mm. does set the stakes, which does set the family dynamic. However, as we go on further and further, he's very much like what the best friend was in Get Out. He worked in isolation here. Here, the father is front and center. Yeah. The sequence of the boat, which shouldn't have been played for... Several sequences of a boat, actually. Which shouldn't which be, should be played, shouldn't the be
3: the played laughs? for laughs. Well, no. Lupita Nyong'o brings a lot to this film. She makes her character someone that you can believe in and empathize with, I think almost completely through the force of her performance. But it, when, you know, the second most important character, essentially, if you don't count the doppelgangers as, mm. as, as the second most important of the protagonist is basically walking punchline slapstick machine. And, and she- it, it undermines the, the tension of this
1: film. It does. She was very good. She is the best performer in this film. However, I have to say the scariest person in the film was actually Shahadi Wright, Joseph, who played the daughter. She had this she very unflinching good. glare, this grimace, and um, if anything is going to keep people up at night, I think it was her in this film. The performers were fine. We haven't acknowledged Tim Heidecker and Elizabeth Moss, both of whom were absolutely, I think, hilarious. They were
3: funny, but um, it again goes back to this film. They're so... Uh, <sighs> It goes back to the, the initial criticism I was pointing out, which is the characters are so much types as opposed to recognizable people. And those characters were basically set up for us to hate them and set up you know, for us to want to see them meet a bad end, essentially. They're like, they're like the, the teens who have sex too early in a, in a 90s slasher film. And I look, I, well, I do appreciate that he continues
1: to cast West Wing alumni, I think he could have use, made much better use of the absolutely superb Elizabeth Moss. Um, I think we should talk about, without ruining anything about this film, the significance of a twist that does occur. Now, I don't think you can really oh, yeah. characteristically refer to this as a twist, given you will likely see this coming at some look, stage Look, the, the problem film. is,
3: it reveals the structural problems with this film. There's a twist which is so spectacularly obvious. I'm not somebody who takes pleasure from saying, I called it, or trying to be smarter than a film I never try to predict what's happening uh, but it was obvious to me uh, what this twist was going to be and when it wasn't revealed when all the chips were falling into place I thought oh okay so he's swerving that isn't actually what it is then when it ultimately does get revealed at the end of the movie um, it, it lands with such a thud because it's by that point it's so expected I'd processed it and prepared myself for it, for it already and what what's without giving too much away, the issue is that if that hadn't been treated as a big reveal, but had instead been uh, dropped earlier in the film, then it would have given the climax much more depth. The problem, not just the climax, the entire third entire, act you could yeah. reflect on it in
1: a different way. Exactly. It? I mean, this invites repeat viewing, but a- I would like to have seen it this way the first time. And
3: it would actually have maybe raised some questions and allowed the film to work better as, a, as some kind of metaphor or allegory. If it, these the questions that the reveal of this twist. Um razors were on your mind as you watched the the final action sequences. From my perspective, it's a very confused genre piece. He wants to create
1: a shocker, but there are many great films. We talked about Upgrade last year, where the twist needs to
3: stay until the end and works well at the end. Here it did not. It doesn't it shouldn't, serve it- much of a purpose here, because it's it's so it's not just obvious within this uh, context, but it's obvious within similar narratives. Like other films that have used similar conceits to us have used this. I think it would be familiar to anyone who's into genre storytelling. More
1: problematic for me, and my biggest issue with the film, is that in Get Out, and again we're comparing it to Get Out, he Jordan Peele wanted to make a point, and it, but it was interwoven in the narrative. It was subsidiary to the drama and the comedy. Here, he is so intent on making an overly symbolic, massive point that he shepherds it in with um, title cards at the beginning, but, with 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 commentary over a television screen, yeah, with literally two characters stopping for five minutes and talking when they should never stop for five minutes and talk in that circumstance.
3: The thing about um, this film is. It's so underdeveloped. I tried to read this as an allegory, as it sounds like you did as well, Glenn, right? It's Very because much so. It seems like it wants us to read it as an allegory because the central conceit is so outlandish um, that it can't be taken as purely literal. No. He uh, asked us to suspend disbelief. Yeah, he's asking.
1: We but, can't do it to the extent. It was, it was required in this film to enjoy it, it's unlike a, it, Out.
3: It's asking you to buy into things that could never happen in reality so you think, okay, um, this must be intended as metaphor. So that's problematic in two different ways. The first way is that um, this film otherwise feels very literal. And so the I, I've been thinking recently about a film called Borgman that I saw about five years ago, which is actually a similar concept um, to what I think this mi- movie might be going for metaphorically. It was a Dutch film about a um, someone who gets h- hired as a caretaker to a middle-class family and gradually turns their lives upside down through s- supernatural ends. He seems to basically just have a mission to destroy the family from within. Um, that film is, I think, yeah, doing similar things to what Us is doing, but the strange mystical goings-on made sense to me within that narrative. I didn't question the suspension of disbelief because it worked within the film's tone, whereas this basically feels like it's it's taking place in literal America. So the...
1: Very blatantly so with one particular line that should not have been in the film.
3: Yeah, and and a lot of references to real-life pop culture and such. It it basically screams that this is a movie about real-world current America today. Um, To compare to Get Out Again... Get Out was able to take me on board with the fantastical science fiction elements. Um, they were minimal. We we, we could he, accept he, them. Yeah, but this this film is so grounded in other ways that you it, it you know that it just leads to more questions and not in a satisfying way. Like how it like the the way that this world is presented to me means that when I'm seeing outlandishly impossible things, I'm saying, "But how can they do that?" Rather than just taking it on the level of poetry, which usually I. I prefer films to take a a less literal, poetic uh, approach, so I don't think the issue is my literalism as opposed to the way Jordan Peele's directed it. But the other thing about um, why I thought this was problematic is that I think the metaphor goes nowhere. Unless we think this isn't intended as some kind of allegory, I'm going to give away the line that Glenn alluded to before. There's a moment when Lupita Nyong'o says to her doppelganger, you know, like, who are you? And she responds, we are Americans. So okay, it's so blatant. all right. So this movie is about America. It's it's begging you to read it as some kind of symbolic story about America. So in that case, what is it actually saying? I, so I thought, okay, this is a fantasy about the underclass. You know, the the doubles essentially uh, represented as a literal underclass coming to. Wreak havoc it's the and start a, the Eloi's. Yeah, in a way. yeah. It, wreak havoc and start a revolution. It's. Um, I think there's a lot of American anxiety about this idea. As when we were discussing the film last night, you mentioned The Dark Knight Rises. I think we'll see more and more films with this kind of uh, metaphor. But if that's what the film's about, Metropolis. Yeah, yeah, Metropolis. But I think um, this kind of class-based story is going to become more and more... I think that's the way the zeitgeist is going. It's going to become more and more common.
1: And we even saw that with Get Out. I'm going to qualify a criticism that I agree with everything you said, except I could have swallowed this if and only if it had been established to a much greater extent throughout the film. Now, we only see a lot of these elements develop in the final acts. A film I'm a big fan of, The Invitation took a huge leap in its final minutes. I felt that was out of character and out of tone for the film. This is something that us does, but on a much grander scale. The conceit of this film is so huge, and it is not something that can be contained and shepherded within what has been alluded to as, and correctly so, a very traditional, dramatic and thriller
3: well, format. I think the con- it would have been more interesting if this concept had been more developed. If you're going to go with this fantastical, otherworldly, and in some ways mystical concept, um, either treat it as pure mysticism and poetry or... I'll go further into the science fiction aspect of it because to, to, towards the end there's a line that seems to be providing or alluding to a bit more of a literal explanation for the doppelgangers in the long conversation that takes place towards the end of the film. Um, as it is, that's just out of place and confuses what exactly this world is and what Jordan Peele is going for, but it hints towards a different kind of film that explored that would have explored the, the world of the underground doppelgangers in a way that actually made that world believable. And I don't think that would have taken away from the power of the film as an allegory. I think those are questions that you want to see answered when it, within the the way that these people are presented to you within the film. Oh, I wanted to know so much like, more imagine, about Like Imagine if we'd, we'd gotten to see their underground society in a way that made sense. It's just kind of awkwardly hanging between poetry and prose. No, we wanted to learn so
1: much more. We were absolutely denied this... I'm gonna say though one element of the film I did really appreciate, and it really became apparent after I, I reflected and actually chatted with Chris um, last night and this morning regarding it. But most horror films have an element where a character does something stupid to advance the plot, all this or that. While the overall consistency of the actually film, didn't is do that in this film, they didn't. They never. And did I appreciate that. I appreciate that no, as well. Yeah, it was well plotted in that regard.
3: Um, but yeah, going back to this as a metaphor, I have to say part of the reason why I say this is, this feels so confused is I've got no idea what John Peele is actually trying to say. If it is, as I was saying before, a metaphor about the re- revolution coming in America, you know, the um, people, underprivileged people finally snapping and deciding to take back control, then it's kind of uncomfortable in terms of its relation to class because the, while their anger is justified, you do not sympathize to any degree with the poor people. You know, because they're depicted in such easy ways as horror movie creatures. They screech. Um, they have weird convulsions and twitches. They wear scary outfits and have scary menacing glares. So it's basically a movie about, you know, about fearing the poor and how, you know, like what, what is this movie saying? Like better, better arm yourself because, you know, to take
0: down the, the poor when they finally come for you. We look out for number one. I think what the other thing is, it's actually playing upon the fears that the privileged have of the poor, the image they kind of that, upon that. So I think it's more about how the privileged see the poor as this kind of you know creature who are kind of maligned. Well, not even the
1: privileged, but the middle class. This is a film yeah. about middle class fears and quote unquote paranoia. I,
3: I think it is about that, but it, but I think it could be more complicated and possibly cause the audience to question themselves more if it had complicated the lower class people to a degree that. You could actually sympathize with them to some degree. I think, as it is, there, it's um, Jordan Peele is afraid to damage the you know th- their um, role as horror movie monsters. So it's like it becomes hard for the audience to buy into that metaphor. So it, it's one of those ways that um, this film feels to me comforting and conventional. Like it's not really asking you to question your prejudices and beliefs and maybe empathize with the poor people. I think it, it does people. in the third act, absolutely. You think it
1: does? I think it absolutely does. without. I, I don't think I can go into it without discussing any spoilers. Dude, but I'd, I'd love plain. spoiler discussion it's, if we could if we could we drop could, that hammer. We could maybe after the top ten We'll list, do that at the end of this we'll podcast. We'll do that at this podcast, sure. But it is a film which I think Verratt alluded to it exactly. It is playing on this conception of our worst fears. It starts with a extremely relatable... The first scare starts with an extremely relatable moment where the father ex- exits the house to confront what he believes to be a home invasion. This is something that can happen to anyone. It's and A then classic and, 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 suburban nightmare. Yes, and escalates from there. It's supposed to be relatable. And this is the worst enunciation of what... People who invade your home could be like. And of course, horror films are going to be exaggerated. I have many issues with the film. I think the characterization of the quote unquote bad guys wasn't one of them.
0: The the other question I have is about literalism that Chris was alluding to, uh, and this is what I've been thinking about. I mean, is it even possible? Let's say that there can be because Jordan Peele is trying to make as broad and you know mass appealing a point. When he's trying to make these kind of the quasi-philosophical uh, movies about, you know, uh, political narratives, essentially without being political, uh, and still appeal to a broad audience, is it even possible that, you know, are you sacrificing nuance for literalism? And what is the kind of medium that you can actually walk the line? Because I think he's what he's going for is like. Let's keep this as dumb as possible while still trying to be high concept.
1: I don't think Do- get out was dumb. I don't don't think Us was dumb. I, again, I said it was I think it was very well plotted. I just think he, I, I think it could use a script doctor
3: by, by dumb I could've mean used you at know least the, a few revisions. this whole world just feels kind of contradictory it, and underdeveloped, yeah,
1: but the casting is so brilliant. all it needed was reworkings of the script and it could have been exponentially Look, better. there's
3: there's a great movie potentially in here. Um, I think he's hitting at very relevant points. Um, so yeah. It's high time to challenge American comfort, but I don't think this film does it in a particularly satisfying way, narratively or, or, accessible or allegorically.
0: Way. Would you say it works better as a comedy than horror? No. 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 It's the, the it best, doesn't the particularly best se-
3: work well in any way.
1: The only sequence in the film I would recommend to watch on its own is the home invasion, the horror sequence, which I did enjoy,
0: but but like the the line that you're alluding to, Chris, about where you know the actual supposed intent of the movie stated quite explicitly. I go back to that. I mean, exposition dump. Yeah, you know, you know, but the fact that you know our audiences around the world, because of the kind of info dump kind of movies that come out on a regular basis, do we need to spoon feed that those kind of narratives because people are just they're not smart enough on a mass appeal level and a mainstream level to appreciate high concept movies. I think that way. people
1: are smart enough to
3: appreciate these really? sorts of movies. I think I, do, I, I, do I think too. they're smart I enough think... to appreciate a better film than this. Yeah, I think I think it's just the assumption that they're not smart enough, which is the problem. Yeah, so Jordan Peele is very
0: smug and actually, you know, it kind of works against himself. He's a very he's commenting against smart people. He's coming and from he's... a very mainstream
3: place. Get the the brilliance of Get Out was that it found a way to address these topics within the context of a mainstream genre of film and still yeah. worked as a horror movie yeah, yeah. this is there's a, a
1: the Nicolas Cage film from about 10 years ago which <laughs> takes a huge leap in its final let's say 15 minutes and, and, and it's and it's <laughs> trying I don't, I don't, I don't want to Say which one it is, and it's trying to make a very broad allegorical point. It doesn't land there. it oh, doesn't I know land the one, guys. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, guys it's, it's if you the know similar.
0: the one, tell us. Uh, call us and call tell us. us, or or like you know,
3: three double o six triple five. No, that's not actually. not the IT crowd where Moss
1: says the you know
3: triple triple o number. Yeah, fire help. The last thing I want to say about this film before we get into spoilers later in the show is something I was alluding to earlier, which this, is, this film just feels so safe in a lot of ways, considering it's a movie about the American dream in danger. It feels safe in the way that it undermines the horror with comedy. Um, it feels safe in the way that it uh, ma- demonizes the poor. Um, it feels safe in the way that it never, maybe until very near the end, really makes you feel like you're in danger. It, it you know it feel it it's almost like a Spielberg type horror like Poltergeist or something. Like it never really feels dangerous in terms of attacking uh, I think it's operating so much like sketch comedy that the people are broad that you can't really see yourself as being one of these people and that makes it safe as satire. It doesn't really feel like it's savaging you know you you or me. It's savaging broad types that no one, like the the Tim Heidecker and Elizabeth Moss family that you could never really empathize with.
1: I find it interesting that you refer to sketch comedy because with horror, and I think we'll discuss this more in the top 10 lists, I appreciate horror that manages to sustain itself. This had two extended sequences in the film, but each sequence occurred very very quickly the film for what should be a what is a home invasion thriller mm. it's made up of a lot of short sequences which means that you move from scare to scare you can't become so invested in one particular circumstance or scenario um i will defend as i've said before, a couple of times now the home invasion sequence and the uh, tim heidecker who should he be was in funny more and more films he was funny yeah um i just wish He's a really that, good actor you know we saw and it's a completely different film um The Blake Lively movie from earlier this year, which jumped from horror, mystery of sorts to comedy. Oh, yeah, yeah, with Anna Kendrick? With Anna Kendrick, yes. This is not uh, like that at all. A simple favour. A simple favour. This um, jumping between genres can work. It certainly worked in Get Out. I don't believe it worked here. That is us. It is in cinemas well, tomorrow. And the next thing we are talking about is our top ten lists for twenty eighteen. Yes. Here we go. To be clear, these are only films that were released between January and December of twenty eighteen. Some may have been, you know, come kind of festival here and there, but they had the cinematic releases in that year. Yeah, I think
3: I'll uh, point out we're we're not including Sweet Country because we counted that as a film from last year.
1: Yes, I saw it at the Adelaide Film Festival in twenty seventeen, yeah, so I'm counting it from there. Yeah. So yeah, so that's otherwise it would certainly be in my list. Um but for the, uh, yeah the Window Film Festival. And we're yes, absolutely. Yep. But, Farad, you are first. Um, we, what we're going to do is we're going to say our top ten lists, then we're going to fight about and then we're going to rank the ones that, using a point system that we worked out with math and science. <laughs> to, we're to, very scientific here <laughs> at Film Fight Club. And to say to figure out which
3: film. Would be our consensus. Yeah, what? last year it was, what was last year? was. Last year it was, was Get Out. Oh, it was which, Silence. I think it was actually Silence. We Last year we said it was Get Out. Because Virat hadn't seen Silence yet, and my dissenting opinion that Get Out was good, but not that good, was not loud enough. But I think if we were to run it again now, it probably would be Silence. Is that Do you think that's right? Because I ranked Silence as, like, number one. I'd rank Silence over Get Out. Yeah. It, depend, it was Virat here to settle this. Silence or Get Out.
0: <laughs> Ugh. Okay, yeah, Silence, yeah. Yay, Silence that's a retrospectively
1: our Retros- <laughs> It's true. A film of 2017. <laughs> yeah, was, uh, was, was Silence. So, uh, th- Get everyone. Out would be
3: close, but Silence takes the top. <laughs> thanks everyone for listening to our 2017 <laughs> Top 10 <laughs> yeah. list. Um, I've, I've don't now don't been we? able to right this great historical wrong. <laughs> okay, Thank you,
1: Martin Scorsese. We're looking forward to The Irishman. Virat, what is your Top 10 for
0: 2018? Okay, I try to do this in very different ways. So, this is a mix of international titles and some Indian movies. So, I'm going to plug some of them, which nobody would have seen anyway. So, still, number 10, we have You Were Never Really Here by Lynn Ramsey. Number 9, Sudani from Nigeria by debut director Zachariah Mohammed, which I feel was the best debut last year.
3: I never saw it. Well,
0: wow. yeah, it's. Uh, Kind of, uh, you've seen Panahi's Offside, the yeah. football political commentary. It's kind of like that, but we will talk about that later. Okay. Uh, number eight, we have Deborah Granik's beautiful, beautiful, very, very, very warm and cuddly Leave No Trace.
3: I wouldn't describe it as cuddly. Oh, but... I, I felt it was pretty cuddly towards the end.
0: Yeah,
3: yeah there's a bit of. And, a and a some bit a cuddle to it. scenes
0: actually in the movie, which is very sweet. Yeah, it's a beautiful film. And uh, number six? Uh, no, number seven. Right, ten, nine, 8, yep. Number seven, <laughs> we have Joseph Kahn's Bodied, which people should rep more often, honestly. Where is the body discussion? Where is the bodied love?
1: Watch it right after you finish this podcast.
0: Yep. And number six, just missing out on the top five spot, is Shiram Raghavan's uh, thriller Andadun, which I feel had the best sequence set to music in any film. The best 10 no. minutes in any film last year. Uh, number five, we at the top five, we have Pavel Pawlowski's Cold War, which I loved. I picked it over Roma, so sucks to be Roma. <laughs> and number four, we have... Uh, we'll see about that. Yes, we will. <laughs> at uh, number four, we have a satirical comedy about life and death in the rural life. A Malay-Alan film called E Maya by Elijah Pelisari. Number three, we have... The political film which I've picked over Sorry to Bother You or Black Klansmen. It is a film about casteism called Perumal. Number two, I have Paul Thomas Anderson's and maybe Daniel Day Lewis's last ever acting performance. It's 3. not, 4. we hope
1: not. Please don't let it be.
0: Phantom Thread. And number one, Dum Dum
1: Dum, <laughs> which was
0: as surprising to me as probably everyone who's listening Jafar Panahi's Three Faces. I mean, Elephant, I, I can't, like, he can just not do anything wrong. It's just, just not possible.
1: Very good. Thank you, Virat. Um, my top ten is just a little bit different. Uh, we start, just a little bit, we started with number ten, which we reviewed at the end of last year, Can You Forgive Me? The best performance, Basuki and Yoma Girls from Melissa McCarthy, and I think my favorite from Richard D. Grant, that includes the excellent Logan. Uh, number nine is something that Virat very clearly overlooked, which was Afonso Coron's. Roma, one of the <laughs> most beautiful films I've seen in recent memory, and one of the great masterpieces of last year. I could only the pick, only masterpieces of last year. I could
0: only pick one black and white film, so there was only space for one. Sorry. Oh, oh too bad. Um, next, we are talking. Number eight
3: is Disobedience from two as well, actually. I picked two black and white films, so take that. I'm I'm the best
0: of film fight club. <laughs> yes, for the that reason, de- the most artistic. Yeah, I'm the most yep. au- the
3: artiste of the group. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh yeah. see, a, see a, how I've managed to steal a, the spotlight from Glenn not, uh, not during his own top ten. I, I, uh-huh. I, I'm
1: just going to jump in and talk about bad <laughs> best picture winners when you, know. but it's your turn.
2: <laughs>
3: I think you're like sharing you're sharing disobedience, Chris. Oh, oh,
1: oh, oh! Wow. Yes, by Sebastian Lello, the director of A Fantastic Woman, which won the Oscar. Um, number seven is actually I should just jump at this point and I think right you alluded to how you chose top ten list. For me it's I pick films obviously of quality and of production and have great production cast and crew behind them and people who I respect and admire. But I also preference films that even if a film may not be technically as great as many others, if it exceeds beyond all else in its genre in any given year and I do appreciate films across any and all genres then that is something I will absolutely give points to and certainly have in this top ten list Um, speaking of number seven is Searching starring John Cho which a number of these films actually premiered at the Sydney Film Festival uh, it's a good festival which was notable for two reasons. Number one, um, having being shown entirely on screens rather than with traditional camera work and two, being one of two films last year. Another one I saw at the Korean Film Festival, which did something I always caution against doing, which is breaking one of the cardinal rules of detective fiction, but doing it oh so spectacularly well in a way I truly did appreciate. What's, and what's the rule? I, I'm not. Oh, I'm, it's the spoiler. I'm really not going to say. <laughs> okay. it, they, they break a rule that you're never supposed to break. Very few authors have broken it. They did, and they did it well. Okay. Which I cool. absolutely, absolutely Tell
0: us a rule if you know the rule. Um, I mean, listeners, we're talking to you right now. <laughs> don't, don't spoil it. It's a great
1: movie. Number six. Um, speaking of horror that is able to sustain itself, piercing I think Virat and I watched this together which was in and of itself a great experience <laughs> I watched it out of like peeking fingers you your head. <laughs> and I just love a film that manages to sustain drama and tension where virtually nothing happens which sounds intuitive. but hey look look if, spe- I, if I could watch like horror
0: and gore without like squealing and being squeamish I would appreciate it more I did like it but the fact is I didn't actually see much of it because I was just hiding my face most of the time which is why I didn't go to see us which I think now is a good decision considering how bad the film is. Mm. It's,
1: You're not missing it's, much. It's, it will still be a good discussion piece, I think, going forward for yeah. probably years to come.
0: I, I might just peek something through my fingers again and see something. <laughs> going to the top five,
1: the first film I caught at the City Film Festival proper, which was Support the Girls, uh, a trend of nice culture, which I thoroughly enjoy. Please read my article on screen on how Magic Mike XXL is one of the most
3: underrated films Magic of the last Magic Mike five XXL years. is solid gold. There's just pure entertainment.
0: I think that's the only time... All the Chris's in the world, including another Chris who likes this movie a lot, might agree maybe on Everyone, something. A lot of, he a he l- a lot of critics it, got it, it wrong
3: that Magic Mike XXL is just, you know, warm, fuzzy, simple... Entertainment. No, it, it's, it's got yeah. a lot of
0: things about male bonding pretty spot on.
3: Yeah, without being preachy. No, not at all. No, I rewatched it every season. It's a really th- easy watch in the best possible ways. I, I compare yeah. it to 50s musicals. It's like, we're all putting on a show. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. sit back, enjoy the road trip, enjoy Mm -hmm. a bunch of fun actors being fun with each other and fun times for all. Great musical and dance sequences as well.
1: I reviewed it in 2015 and I liked it, but I didn't give it nearly enough credit. And I saw, actually, this was spectacular. I saw it at the premiere and Channing
0: Tatum and Joe Mangelo they were all
1: there. And there were 5,000 screaming fans. It was a pretty great night.
0: Nice. Guys, please read Glenn's reviews if you don't know already, because he gives give them a plug a lot. So yeah,
1: Magic Mike XXL. We, we don't. Where we else are we going to talk about Magic Mike Excel except in this context? Sorry, top ten. Um, <laughs> we should though. We it's should. A,
3: it's a, it's great that Magic Mike Excel is finally getting a plug on 2SER approved media. <laughs> yeah. So moving on. Um, number four, a film that has been referenced
1: already, bodied by Joseph Kahn. One of probably the film that surprised me the most last year. I didn't know what to expect. I hadn't seen the trailer. It was the only. It it remains the only film I've ever seen at the film festival twice. If that is any endorsement, wow. go see it.
0: Top five, yep. yeah, absolutely, big is. mood.
1: Yeah, we lacking bodied. Um, I think number three counts for what I said earlier, if you exceed the levels of your genre and then, hey, you're on my list, Mission Impossible Fallout. It is one of the best action films and action stunt films of recent memory. Tom Cruise, who was 55 when he filmed it, um, outdid everyone else in he, any other A-lister. The stuff he did in the Kashmir sequence, in the London sequence, in the Paris sequence, my God. Good for you, man. I can't wait for Mission Impossible 6.
0: I mean, considering what happened in Kashmir just recently, I just could really appreciate Tom Cruise right now and just, like, solving, <laughs> the, the, yeah, solving the whole crisis. This is all, This
1: is the pilot went back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> p- 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 please, getting political on film, Fight Club here. <laughs> okay.
0: That was <laughs> um, a really good joke, man.
1: <laughs> Sorry. Um, number two, You're Never Really hear by Lynn Ramsey. I Wow,
0: number two. Oh, wow. I
1: struggled with this and number one. I saw them within a few days of each other as to whether it was my favorite film of last year. Um I will I will go to number one in the second. However, this, whether it be Walking Phoenix's performance, probably my favorite of his, The Score by Johnny Greenwood, the beautiful sequences in the lake, um, of in the kitchen of Phoenix Brooding, and it is beyond superb. Johnny,
3: Johnny Greenwood put out two incredible scores between that and Phantom Thread. Yes, he did. He's well represented in our lists. Um,
1: interestingly, my number one is also a film about a war veteran suffering severe PTSD and their relationship with a young woman. My number one has been referred to already. It is Deborah Granick's Leave No Trace. And that is in part for um, the amazing performances from her breakout star, Thomasin McKenzie, and Ben Foster, again, my favorite performance of his. It was... You, it's it's hard it's rare you smile and laugh and cry at the same time but you can do that and leave no trace and that is one of the many reasons that I think it is just barely from you never really hear but my stand up for the year
0: yeah we're we representing um, female directors pretty well I'm let's
3: pat fun. ourselves on the back
0: yeah, for uh, being <laughs> three dudes for being good allies yeah. good well done thumbs up guys yeah great work guys so <laughs> great, great, great work dudes so
3: <laughs> my top ten Number 10, You Were Never Really Here. Number 9, Leave No Trace. Are
0: you just copying my list? Are you just copying my
3: list? Is that what's happening here? Okay, so number 8, one that hasn't been mentioned yet, Ryusuke Hamaguchi's follow-up to Happy Hour, Asuka 1 Plus 2, which I caught at the Melbourne International Film Festival, one that I don't think many people loved as much as I did, except for Connor Bateman. Shout-outs to Connor Bateman. Um, (laughs) think I think this is a really unique look at romance that uses a magical realist concept to get at some uncomfortable truths about the way that people relate to each other. Um, And I, I think there are some awkward moments in the big tonal shift that this film goes through, but it nonetheless manages to work as a light and fluffy romance and as a dark introspective character piece. Number seven is Love Diaz's latest four-hour epic, <laughs> Season of the Devil, <laughs> which, if you don't know about, is entirely sung in a cappella. Um,
1: oh, my acapella. God, I love those movies. Oh, they're yeah. so good.
3: Oh, but it's not a
1: sequel to...
0: No, oh, not, not Anna that kind of... Uh, oh, Anna Kendrick movie. Okay, sorry. Oh, a yeah. cappella harmony...
3: No, it's not like that. Um, we could sing. I can still remember the main song that <laughs> runs throughout it, but we'll, we'll spare your, yeah. your ears of our singing. Number six. Oi, oi, oi. Sorry, that's another movie. <laughs> number six is Roma. Number five, which I caught at the Italian Film Festival, Alice watchers Happy as Lazaro.
0: I am so devastated. I could not see it, but everyone who's seen it, just loves it and that is one movie from last year that i regret missing out on.
3: number four is hirakazu kareira's shoplifters which is the palm d'Or winner i think it's a beautiful film about again class which seems to be the big issue that a lot of filmmakers are um, dealing, grappling with right now and really the the true meaning of family and what are the ties that Really matter in a world where humans are being put more and more against each other.
0: Best female uh, acting performance, I think, in an elite role in that film.
3: Uh, yeah, very she, possibly. She, was, um, she fantastic. was fantastic, yeah. Number three, Joseph Cardin's Bodied. Ooh, okay. Oh, wow. Yes, yes. That's that's, high that's, up, yeah. Uh, you
0: can watch it on YouTube Red. Represents. At, at YouTube Adam, Premium,
3: whatever it's called now.
0: Adam Merkham represents. Adam Merkham represents.
1: What's your stage name? Adam? Adam, there's, there's a sequence like there's so many good sequences to the film, but the best one is in the dean's office, where um, it's him, his father, and uh, the, I think she's the dean, and yeah. they're fighting about his behavior. And there's just so <laughs> sad, many lines sad. that are pure, pure gold. I think every line. It's kind of like the Simpsons episode with the shitting. Like yeah. every line or second line is just an absolute. Are you
0: piece looking of gold to satirize? Yeah,
3: <laughs> number two. Uh, we'll get to body it in a moment when we get to debate these lists. Um, but number two, Phantom Thread. Mm. And uh, just to prove that me and Virat <laughs> have such divergent taste. Here we number go. Number one, Jafar Panahi's Three Faces.
0: Ooh. Look Look how much we have evolved, guys. I mean, me and Chris used to be at loggerheads.
3: We were always at each other's throats, and now we have the same 10-9 <laughs> and the same 1-2 on our list. Yeah,
1: to, to give everyone some context, there are six films that crossed over Three of them were on all three of our lists. Those were bodied, leave no trace, and you will never really. Let's count down yeah. from six. The yes. the top six. So number number six, honorary mention with nine points. Just to be clear, if you get one, then we give you ten points, and it flips over. Pretty straightforward. We 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 learnt math. Uh, number six is Roma with nine points by Fonso Coron, which is on Netflix now go watch it it's the already.
0: wrong black and white movie guys watch yeah, Cold the season War season of the devil it, it, is. it's,
3: it's, it's really <laughs> See, Cold War, really not Cold War I enjoyed but I found it almost
0: too simple and slight and straightforward I'm wondering why you love it so much Farad I, I, I don't know look, part of what is annoying about Roma is what I like about Cold War that it is simple and it's not going for some kind of profound meaning that Roma seems to be overreaching for I don't need to like watch a film which is like oh don't, you know? Dedicated to my growing up years, and look, you know the people who work for us and domestic help—they also deserve to have their own stories yeah, told. Yes, they do. Good for yeah. him.
1: He told the story. It's great.
0: No, it's great. No, no, not really. I think it's just smug. No, anyway, it's Roma. Roma's it's not, not smug, smug at all.
1: He's telling the story. Okay, what is great about Roma is that you have a character who is always in the background, and in the and is in the background at the beginning, until so he moves to the foreground as we get to know. Uh, Cleo, Ulitsar show's character. It's some, beautifully done. It's people, such reverence for this individual.
3: Yeah, some people have taken issue and said, okay, white guy... Well... Well, n- no. <laughs> 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 Rich guy. Rich guy makes a movie about, um, about domestic help who is silent throughout all the movies so she could be a suffering, silent person just the way that rich-slash-white guys like it. But... As I understand it this is pretty in keeping with Mexican cultural norms and you know a realistic depiction of people who are encouraged to be silent. And I I don't th- think that, I don't think the film is smug in its approach.
1: Absolutely. And it deals with a lot of incredible moments in uh, Mexican history in the 1970s and rendered um the protest sequence, the training sequence. Yeah,
3: I think it's the culmination of what Quaron has been trying to work towards for a while in terms of the long take sequences. Um, he makes um, takes it further than he did in Children of Men and Gravity by creating such um, depth in terms of the action happening in the foreground contrasted with the action happening in the background. Um, oh, it's and it's such a such a treat to immerse yourself in this in this film, and, and the sound design as well is incredible.
1: Purely a technical achievement. The sequence in the water, the fire sequence, the shooting mm. sequence,
3: but it genuinely draws you in to further empathize with the characters. It's not just a technical stunt. Yeah. By and the end, I felt like I was well, part of this. The this opening world. scene
1: was a te- the opening shot was a technical stunt, which made that point so explicitly well, um, without actually shoving it in your face. It's one of the best shots I've seen in years, and years, and years.
0: Okay, I'm, I'm clearly going to be on the wrong side of history of Aroma, so I've accepted well, we that. Well, we could all be wrong.
3: You well, could be right. You well, never know. You no,
0: know. What I appreciate about Cold War is the fact that it's using uh, music as emotional beats and recurring song choices. It does feel repetitive, but kind of like Season of the Devil. I think it's by design and not because of anything else. Uh, but yeah, it's they're both black and white films they're both good so I mean we're not saying that you know if you like one or the other uh,
3: yeah I, Cold terribly. War is definitely good Yeah, I enjoyed it I'm not, I'm not here to say Cold War yeah. should be in the bottom I mean, all, all,
0: all three black and white movies in our list deserve <laughs> Some kind of watch, so you know if you. I think so too. Yeah, yeah.
3: Like the performance, like
1: the one musical sequence, I found it really depressing. And I guess that was, I guess that was the design, but um, depressing to the point of Cold not War? really being entertaining. Yes, right. Um, I was in Warsaw at the central station just a couple of, just a few weeks ago now, and it's this hov- ho- terrible monstrosity of Soviet architecture, and I found it more engaging than so many elements of Cold War, and less depressing.
0: Yeah, that's true. It, it is quite depressing. But Joel and colleague was a breakout. Star in that movie. She was fantastic. Oh
3: in the yeah! Role. Drum you. rolls, everyone. Are we going to continue with our- number <laughs> <Yeah>. five? Number <laughs> five. five. Number five on
1: eleven points is "You Were Never Really Here" by Lynn Ramsey. Uh, we, on all of I- our lists, right? On all our lists,
3: yeah. I "You Were Never Really Here" I found was so fun. At the same, you know, it's simultaneously uh, is disturbing in how crazy Joaquin Phoenix's character is and how traumatized he is, but it also manages to work. At, without undermining that as a fun piece of genre revenge action, yeah, and it's and it's, it's it is definitely an art action thriller. You know, a lot of action scenes are shot from strange angles, or you know, violence takes place off screen.
0: A good kind of comparative point is is Mandy and you're never really here. And oh, man, Mandy's so much better than Mandy, though. Exactly, but like what Mandy is going for, and yet you know, completely forgets in the second half. You never really hear actually, kind of established. Yeah, the sustained on. tone of madness, yeah. And, and, yeah, and yeah, there's there's a lot of dread design. to you never really hear incredible, incredible score as well wow,
3: without feeling
1: gratuitous, without anything that happens. And yeah. I, I've said earlier how, how I felt about you never really hear. Um, I still, it could, it just barely was edged out for my number one. Um, and even the minor performers in this who had small roles, um, Alessandra Navoli, who was also in Disobedience, which we discussed earlier, what, um, is the political candidate.
3: What was, let down You'll Never Really Hear from Me was the ending.
1: Uh, the final sequence did jar with me, the very final sequence. Yeah. I feel it was the one unnecessary aspect of the film, yeah. I feel it could have gone in the way with making its point yeah. without being so blatant and yeah. um. And I would say the same so and for, sudden.
3: Um, for a film not in our combined list. Happy as Lazaro could have been higher in my list if it hadn't also made- faulted and gone too obvious yeah. and jarring in the final scene.
0: Anyway. But, but still, I think it should have, uh, You Never Really have should have been, like, not overlooked in the award season either. I think oh, really yeah, but
3: there was no chance that a movie this ostentatiously arty
0: was going to make it. I don't. I don't think it's that arty. I think it's mostly a genre film. It thing. is mostly
3: a genre film, but it, it is far more. It's not even that abstract, but it's more abstracted than films in this genre typically are, or that fans of the genre are probably used to. Oh, fans, terrible people! <laughs> what
1: are they good for? What are they good for?
0: Absolutely wet. nothing.
1: Okay. So number four on 15 points is Leave No Trace, my number one. I spoke earlier about why I loved it. I'll make just two further points in it. Um, It has been compared to Winter's Bone to a great extent, uh, given the parallel with what is seen to be Jennifer Lawrence's rise to stardom and what could very well, I think will very well, be Thompson McKenzie's rise. It's
3: so much better than Leave No Trace, though. Winter's Bone. Sorry, God. (laughs) It is much better than Winter's Bone, in my opinion.
1: And I'll further say that we've seen Ben Foster do what he can do in Hell or High Water and many other thrillers and dramas. This is his far and above best performance. Um, The last visage of him that we see in the film and even him throughout. um, The care that his character has for his daughter that is so evident in everything that he does, even in the harrowing sequences with the uh, Christmas trees. Um, The only real symbolic aspect of the film, which nonetheless worked incredibly well, I'd love to see more from these characters. I don't think we'll see a sequel to this, but I'd love to know what happens to them following this film.
3: This film was weirdly overlooked by the American critical and awards establishment in general. It's so patient with its characters. It is. It genuinely cares for and is interested in exploring the depths of them as people and gradually gets there and reaches a point of complexity, of being able to care for somebody and understand where they're coming from while also seeing how they can be doing somebody else damage. You know, it it's a it's a movie really about understanding somebody instead of just writing them off, which I think is
0: necessary right now. I mean I mean, you look at number three and four and all and they're both movies about trauma in some sense and they're both going in very different directions. Uh it's I mean Leave No Trace is such a kind and tender movie, not just because it's depicted in that way and the characters are treated in that way, but it also is kind to you, the audience, in how it's tackling trauma as a subject matter. Because often... Not in an exploitative way. Not at all. Actually, it's... I think that's the thing that stays with you, is that it's tackling such a sensitive issue with sensitivity, which doesn't happen much, unfortunately. And... Seeing characters like the Ben
1: Foster character who are so ravaged by the experiences they go through, it is something that is usually kept at the sidelines or something that filmmakers or screenwriters who want to have their films on such a wide screen will shy away from that wasn't done here. And it was so much more special for the fairly uncommon experience of being able to see a character like this writ large. Um, that was a very special film, Leave No Trace. That was our number four. The th- number three film, which uh, had eighteen, which again we hope will not be Dan day Lewis's last performance, was Phantom the Thread. earliest. The earliest film from this year, the one we saw at the very beginning of the year, Phantom Thread. Yes,
3: I think Paul Thomas Anderson finally delivered a masterpiece here. I think he's always been a little bit in the shadow of his influences um, until maybe his last three films, Inherent Vice, the ma- you know the Master, Inherent Vice, and this. Um, and though *Inherent Weiss and The Master both sort of felt halfway there, like films that could have been great um, but were clearly signs of reaching towards something different in terms of tone and aesthetic to what Paul Thomas Anderson had done before and I think it finally reached its culmination here. I, it's so sensitive to detail and patient but at the same time his sense of comedy is right there throughout. There's a deep irony running through this film and it's incredibly rich
0: as a character study as well as being just beautiful aesthetically i mean yeah it, it's just it's so dark and twisted and continuously ask you to take sides yes. and change sides yeah there's a lot and of that's uh, done sorry
3: no they, there's a lot of psychological complexity um but at the same time that it's dark and twisted there's also genuine romance to it. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's not its not cheating the audience. It's not like pulling the rug off, you know, the audience and saying, ha-ha, fooled you. It's none of that happening, it's, actually.
3: It's genuinely a movie about love, just seen through a very twisted perspective.
0: Yeah, and it's, you know, all the kind of movies that we've talked about in some sense are asking us to be more accepting, whether it is, you know, of different perspectives or trauma or, you know, so in a way, actually, yeah. like, there is a theme, if there is one. It's about, yeah, kind it's of about best coming... Films
3: of the year, it's uh, about coming to understand a weird
0: person, as a lot yeah. of these films are about. Which is, you know, I think which is what the world is moving towards. It's, it's more tolerance, but in ways that we don't expect. Mm. Yeah.
1: I really enjoyed Phantom Threat. I thought it was a very good film. I thought it was one of the better films I saw from earlier this year. It didn't take, make my top ten list, and there's only a couple of reasons for that. Number one, I feel... Um, there was a bit of a drag. There are parts where you could have cut it, could have been just a bit shorter to make it punchier. Oh, so you look at the work of Daniel Day Lewis and Paul Thomas, and in particular their previous project, uh, which was robbed of Best Picture, Absolutely There Will Be Blood. And I think it's very rare you see, um, well, it's not very rare, but it's not so many actors, directors go for large scale projects in chaotic environments and have. Generally, enormous trouble managing um, something on a canvas on that scale. Neither Daniel Day-Lewis or Paul Thomas Anderson had that issue, as seen with the epic that was that film. And I think, as famous as popular as it was, still one of the more underrated films of the past fifteen years. I rate that very highly about Phantom Thread.
3: On the and- subject of people being robbed of Oscars, though, Vicky Creeps in Phantom Thread was incredible. So she much was. depth and so much mischief in her little smile. Yeah, huh. yes. and, and yeah. And both, from a both, relative newcomer too. Both,
0: yeah, both it, both the female characters actually, even the one Leslie it, Manville. It was, was oh, yeah. so she great. was she was Brilliant. the best of so
1: the great. film. She was far and above the best. Performer. I would
0: say I would say it was Vicky Creeps actually. She I was just so surprised by her performance. Yeah, and oh, I mean, and there's so much attention to detail. Actually, I mean the the way the some scenes are framed in this movie are just so innovative and. Yep. You know, it's it's very traditionalist, while at the same time feeling fresh. Yeah, especially in you know characterization and kind of goes with what the character of Daniel De Los is like as well. It is kind of you know traditionalist, snobby, and the filmmaking and how to frame the frames are shot kind of reflect that as well. It does, yeah. It's, it's very much
3: about like the the old world in terms of both filmmaking just, and the social milieu. Yeah,
0: but slightly off center. The
3: hilariously named Reynolds Woodcock. Yes. <laughs> lives in yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I, I did appreciate his attention to breakfast. I've been having um, Irish breakfast recently, and they've been well set out and well staged. Were you and interrupted rudely during these breakfasts? Sometimes, and it was very disquieting.
0: I, I I also have the same issue when I'm having food. I love food. If you ever interrupt me while I'm eating, do you hate certain people's chewing noises? Not or? just chewing noises. I think people want people. There are the two types of people in this of world. The cutlery scraping across yeah, the plate. I mean, just someone <laughs> being there. Just yeah. anyone. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that, that's true. Like. There there are two types of people in this world. It's the last time we have brunch together, Varad. You know, there's type A, the people who actually just want to be left alone while they're eating. The type B, people who want to have conversations while you're eating. I'm type A and I hate type B people. Uh, you know, just as a pointer. So, I'm so we eating, can fight about. Yeah. So if you want to talk to me, talk to me after I've finished my fucking food.
1: So, on that note on that note um, a film with a lot more swearing than what we just heard <laughs> is our number two on the in terms of our point scoring system with 19 just so you remember um, Phantom Throat 18 this is number two with 19 and, and it's that, the yes, l- highest
3: film that was on all of our lists yes
1: yes bodied 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 I've seen it three times now I plan to watch it again I don't plan to watch it again alone I want to watch it with a bunch of people who haven't yeah. seen it and have an absolute I've ball. only seen
3: it the first time I've been putting off the one month free trial for YouTube premium <laughs> to watch a uh, one week or whatever it is to, can we just yeah.
1: appreciate just this guy came from a Callum Worthy came from Disney Channel yeah. doing very very different content
3: yeah, his character here is just absolutely savage. Adam. As the kids would say. <laughs> and it pokes... What, what I appreciate about the film is... It no, does, they would say an absolute savage. Absolute, it anyway. does... Two, it, it pursues <laughs>
1: two types of humour. One is the war on everyone, um, outlandish, poking fun at things... For the sake of doing so and being outrageous for outrageous sake. Not dissimilar similar from what Trey Parker and Matt third made a career out of. The other is, I think, the first film reacting to what is, for lack of a better term, a woke, broadly, campus culture mm. not just in the US, but what we've seen in Australia and many other countries, and reacting against that and pointing out the flaws, not just in that, but in the um, also conservative elements of society on a campus and those who would be um, avowedly critical of such cultures. It tries to it it does so well. I think it does try to say this is our morality. Here's what we think. It doesn't try and force it upon you. It tries to poke fun and criticise every aspect of who would be vocal on campus and the press and any an environment which we would routinely be exposed to.
3: Yeah, I think on top of being hilarious politically and making some very salient points, but I, that I think a lot of people would take issue with. Look, I, I think this film. I think it's almost too complex for the age we live in yeah. it makes fun of people for being you know devoted to outrage um for being so obsessed with their particular pol- um pet political issues yeah. that they become incensed at the smallest possible provocation and so it's about characters that play against that you know, the, the the lead rebels against that by trying to be as provocative as possible, but that doesn't mean that the film is saying that you shouldn't care about political issues. Exactly, because it ultimately makes the point that the while um, Adam Merkham's girlfriend is annoying in her performative outrage, Adam is also in going in the other direction. Shown to be just an asshole.
0: Yeah, and I think that's kind of the complexity of the narrative, which a lot of people will miss out on. Exactly, because, because, because I think there are not
3: a lot of people will look at this film and and just say, "Oh, this film is attacking me. This yeah. film is is saying it's okay to be offensive."
0: The, the, the thing it is, is and it isn't. It, it yeah. strikes
3: a pretty complex
0: ground. I the say. the problem, or I guess the genius of this film is that you know everyone's a target. Yeah, and, which is why people who watch this, but, but initially uh, you'll be confronted. I mean, I was watching <laughs> it the first time. Yeah. I was just, I was like, oh my god, this is taking no. Prisoners. It
3: causes you, yeah. It it asks, it makes you question yourself, which is not what I think audiences are looking for yeah. in. What is, in many other ways, presented as a mainstream entertainment. Yeah. That's what's so interesting about this film. is yeah, that it's, it's not an outlandish art film. It is a straightforward, linear narrative made in a way to appeal to about teenagers. Yeah. About, about rap that- battles. About rap battles. <laughs> we haven't mentioned that... that- it's a this film, film about, is a about rap, rap, rap battle battles, Adam. And the rap, because the script was written by a battle rapper who was a friend of Joseph Kahn. And produced by Eminem. And, yeah, produced by Eminem. <laughs> who, who, according to the film, every white boy has yeah. to, you know, pay homage to. The the rap's are hilarious. <laughs> a, a good portion of this film is these really dynamically, yeah. like a music video shot, rap battles, which are consistently funny as well as being yeah. good in terms of, of oh, the
0: rhyme. Yeah. Also very interesting about how rap battle battlers themselves see the content of rap battles, right? Yeah. And, and what they see to be fair game and what they see to be you yeah, know, stepping the over film, the it, bounds of those things. It's
3: because of hiring a real life rap battler at to to flesh out this script it feels lived in and real. It, it feels like insider knowledge. It's not like a, a sterile, Hollywoodized version of, of this world. Obviously, it's exaggerated for comic effect, but it pretty much feels, feels like you're being shown something truthful. Yeah.
0: Also, what the other thing that I feel, and which is why, you know, we kind of you might feel like we're selling this film short and why is this number two on our list, is that it's very inventive in how it's shot. Yep. and you know yep. it is not just funny because of you know the content it's also how the content is presented
1: yeah, let's give some context to this Joseph Kahn is probably the most prolific videographer working today he video, did videographies video for video, yeah. the entirety of the Swift's Swiss 1999 including the, probably the most yeah. famous one just the Bad Blood video clip he directed many a great Faith
3: No More music video paying homage to Alfred Hitchcock and Vertigo this back based, in the this 90s this guy's basically my hero he's yeah he's done a lot of a lot of great great music videos Joseph Kahn you know shout out shout out to Joseph <laughs> Kahn his first film was all also really underseen and was was really really good detention
0: yeah Um, which is no, um,
3: which is also a movie that um plays with genre in a similar way to bodied bodied as i was saying before is basically a conventional comedy narrative a linear narrative um designed to appeal to a mass audience um it's it's confronting in terms not of its form um though its form is innovative uh but in the the content Um, But seen within the context of a mainstream comedy, this film, as Varad was saying, also takes no prisoners. Comedy so easily, so sorry, comedy normally is so much about flattering the audience and keeping them comfortable. And this is a film where events have major consequences. It doesn't walk things back when characters take, you know, shocking actions. There are huge character arcs and big rises and falls. Um, it feels like it has the depth of a novel that you go through a lot with these characters while maintaining the lightness of its tone. I think it's it's really a triumph of storytelling.
1: I think you can see this in the diversity of characters. There's a character who... We've talked about Adam. we talked about Adam's girlfriend who is on the... Um, other than the scale of, but then you have the character, the battle rapper known as racist, who comes in and says, Oh, I'm just here because I feel equal opportunity for everyone. I want to attack everybody. And you see the faults in Adam's philosophy, even to the extent the philosophy of the character who's probably the most moral, upstanding one, at least as printed in the film, Ben Grimes, Adam's mentor. Um, there are three, if, when you do watch Barty, I think it's, you need to it's important to pay special attention to three very well staged sequences, which are mostly back and forth talking sequences between two to three characters. One is a dinner sequence, which barely registers as satire, but is absolutely superb satire. I have sat in on dinners where people have had these almost exact if not exact conversations. Another is a sequence in the Dean's office, where a lot of this comes to the fore. And a third is a sequence in Ben Grimes' house, where Adam is confronted with the hypocrisy of a lot of his actions, which I think is the most, is the only time in the film where the screenwriters really come at at you and say, here's what we think, but it still works as a piece of drama exceptionally well.
3: This film, speaking of the satire, is so ahead of the curve. What's amazing is this was actually shot two years ago, but because distributors were worried about this film potentially arriving to an unwelcoming audience, um, the release date kept getting pushed back and back and back until it finally arrived with barely any fanfare on YouTube. But the humour here isn't going to be appearing, I think, in other mainstream entertainment for another five years or so. No. It's so speaking about right now instead of five years in the past, as, as we're used to in our social commentary. It actually has teeth instead of saying things that everyone agrees with now and condescending to the audience.
1: Go see it. That is body. That was number two on our list, uh, turning to the point system at least. The next film, well, the number one film, which appeared on two lists... Um, but very highly on two lists was Jafar Panahi's Three Faces.
0: Yes, Three Faces, uh, or I guess the point where Chris and I become one person. Yeah. Uh, yep. Three Faces. I was to stand on
3: back this one. Again, I was
1: ambivalent about this movie.
3: This film is basically Panahi's tribute to Abbas Kirasami, yet still invested with Panahi's worldview and I think he brings more of a of a cuddly kind of warmth to his films than Kirostami does. And maybe more of a humor, um, more of a, a quirky kind of um approach to comedy, but it features so many of Kiurostami's uh techniques in terms of meta-narrative, um in terms of his approach to framing, there is a beautiful shot towards the end, which I think, um, in terms, depicting frames within frames within frames, which I think speaks so much of Panahi's love for his mentor Abbas Kurosami. Um Also, in terms of uh, the, the setting, the, the the of the outskirts of Iran, rural territories near the border.
0: I mean, I just continue to be amazed, given the fact uh, the restrictions placed on Panahi and how he firstly, uh, within the constraints of the environment, he continues to make not just movies, but cinema that is pushing the boundaries of, from a technical point of view... It's pushing the boundaries of the form. Yeah, of the form. And also, still continuing to say relevant things about his society and and the place he comes from. It is fascinating how... And also, saying it in a way which is not snobbish, which is not... Alienating, or it's not trying to be smug. It's still very, yeah. You know,
3: it's it's a it's a city yeah. person's movie about the country, but it it I don't think feels without having maybe all of the cultural knowledge uh, to really appreciate this film. I don't think it feels smug, but, but well, I
1: do appreciate that. Uh, I, look, one thing I do appreciate about this film is that he really did take the piss out of the revolutionary guards and the regime by just making yes, a road trip movie while under house arrest.
3: Yeah,
0: <laughs> like, yes, he like, did. Good for you, man. Good for you. <laughs> but but also, you know, it, it's it's so fascinating that. Even in Panahi, and this is something which I just envy so much, that his ability to read characters and still represent them as, you know, he's able to depict conflicting and often contrarian points of view in the same film, in the same scene, where people are interacting, and yet give each of them their own humanity and not rob them of that. It is a very distinctive Panahi thing, which I don't think any of the director in the world has
3: it's a strongly feminist film without um well i think panahi has gone in with a lot of self-awareness as his role as a man making a movie about the strength of, of women so he casts himself within the narrative and casts himself as somebody playing a support role to listen to the stories of three women essentially basically uh,
0: and it's it's fascinating once again you have you know the the actress who's playing you know the the main role in this Reza movie yeah name. but you know it's it's so fascinating how the characters in Panahi's films often become the catalyst to discover more about not only themselves but also the place that they're from and and it's fascinating how he continues to find something to say given that, you know, by this point, you kind of feel like there's he's exhausted everything to say about Iran there is. And yet he continues to find new things and new ways of telling stories.
3: Yeah, this is really a triumph of minimalism. It's shot with DSLRs um, and generally long takes. But Panahi finds so many ways to make you question the role of the camera and play with time and framing. Um, There's narratives within narratives... There's a scene early on, shot within a car, with a camera just consistently doing 360 degree pans as action takes place inside the car and then outside of the car, which is amazingly blocked and just interesting to watch play out. Um, there, he plays with um, he plays with the car. The car is another Abbas Kiarostami trademark, and Panahi plays with it in, in so many ways. There's a hilarious shot involving the motorized incliner of of the seat in the car yeah. um, and beautiful framing outside of car windows. Um, there's also a shot in this that uses the time-lapse in an absolutely mind-blowing way to me. Actually, there's another... Oh God, there's so much to talk about within this film. The time-lapse shot, as well as another shot involving a character walking at nighttime, use digital technology in a way that is accessible to anyone really as i say this is minimalism this is visual effects that are achievable by anyone with an edit suite but are so creative and visually striking i think um he's just such an innovative filmmaker in terms of making
0: the most of what's available to him and it's fascinating because like you know if you're a director often either you're doing something with the form or you're doing something with your actual subject matter, but Benahi, Benahi doing manages to it, do both. He's he's an artist at the top
3: of his game because he's doing beautiful and forward-thinking
0: things in all aspects of his craft. I think. Yeah, I mean, you just go back, and I say this. Also, not it's just, funny. It, it is. It is truly there's, genuinely there's, funny. This
3: is this is a movie made up not so much of, um, and I think this. Reading some of the other reviews, this has put a lot of people off. It's not so much about the forward momentum of the narrative as it is about a series of shaggy dog stories. It you is, know, it, it's, it sets itself up to be a certain kind of film and then immediately lets all the tension out of that. Yes. And instead of being about the thrust of the main inciting dramatic incident, it's yeah. just about you, you hanging just, out with characters and getting to know them.
0: You just have to, uh, you know... Getting to know the people of a
3: village, essentially. Yeah,
0: pretty much. Or like, you know... So just,
3: don't expect a thriller despite what, how the way this film stick, opens. Stick
0: with the first 15-20 minutes because I think that's when most people kind of gave up. Because they were expecting a very different kind of I know some people gave up film. because
3: they thought that this would be an incredibly yeah, heavy very film different but it kind turned out to be and a very light humanistic yeah, film.
0: it's not. And the other part about it is, look, you know, what he's doing with the subject matter is also incredibly important because, you know, the human rights lawyer from his previous film, Taxi, Iran Taxi, is now, you know, uh, being jailed for how many years in Iran? Yeah. And she's, you know, punished in incredibly uh, dehumanistic ways. So, like, his... Uh, yeah. These movies have consequences, and what he's trying to show is actually, it's it it is it's more, it's more real than he would let on. And yet, still, you yeah. you're able to digest a lot of this content because of the way that it's presented.
3: It, it's an idea that um, you know, I went back and I rewatched This Is Not a Film, and I realized that the film that he was trying to make in the, This Is Not a Film that he uh, was suddenly barred from when he was banned from making movies has evolved into what we see in Three Faces. And that story concept about a girl um, being stopped from going to the city to pursue art really is a metaphor for where Panahi and his his lead actress and a lot of people in the Iranian film industry are going through for the, their struggle. But the movie isn't just a cry and a wank about art. It's yeah. very much, it's a, about, it's about, um, it, it's more universal than that. It's about enduring to try to be the best person you can within the limitations
0: you find yourself within. I mean, just just go back and rewatch watch Banahi's filmography. It's yeah. a beautiful, beautiful uh, yeah. sort of, you know, you can just see how he's developing as a director and filmmaker. That's true. And he has so much to say. I, so much I
3: think say. any great art, as well as being incredibly specific, becomes universal and uh, will strike at the point where you find entry points to empathize with it. And I think the same thing is happening here. Um, it's also just a, a really funny interesting look at rural life in a part of the world that is very rarely d- represented in any kind of entertainment let alone any kind of reportage uh, this movie is
0: so interesting just as a road movie travelogue I mean I feel like I've known Iran through you know Panahi's movies uh, there is no other Iran that I know and the fact is I feel like I've known... Kiarostami's movies as well. Yeah, and I feel I like say, I've also tried to make you, show I've, you the character of Iran. In and I've to, almost like, I feel like I know these people, not as characters that, you know, I kind of know why they think how they think, mm. which is a very fascinating thing. And it's it's kind of inside which I think most directors just aspire for and would envy to have in their characterization.
3: With the passing of, of Abbas Kiarostami and now this ultimate tribute to him, I wonder if we will see Jafar Panahi try to move away from... Um, It's interesting because he does tribute in a way that doesn't feel, to me, to be just... Yeah, overly um, obvious tribute. It doesn't feel feel soulless and uh, hollow in the way that a lot of films that are entirely based on homage do. Because I think Panahi has his own personality and has his own ideas that he injects into it. So instead, it's just a very sincere act of one artist paying tribute to the person who taught him. I mean, ever since he inserted, started inserting himself in, in narratives. He's I think pushing that, that, he's pushed that to the furthest yeah. point here, where in this film, it's not just like, this is, is this a documentary or is it not? It's yeah.
0: really it's a narrative Jibha, yeah, Jibha where Jafar <laughs> is a character. Yeah, but also <laughs> I, I love the fact how in his movies now, his characterization is also just slightly different, but it's a marked difference where he loves to, even though he's, technically taking a leading role behind the camera mm. in front of the camera he's just happy to just not he
3: injects comedy into this in the way i mean I'm, I'm talking about the kiarostami comparison before to give an example of how panahi is different that he really plays with the comedy of the moment of of his actress saying hang on this sounds like the script you were talking about you know like are we in a movie right now <laughs> Um. There's. The, yeah. There's, we could just go on and on about this movie, but we're driving Glenn to madness. We're looking at. We're watching. you <laughs> You've, you've eye rolling pretty hard right now.
1: No, I wasn't. I just actually. It's interesting to compare this, in a sense, to Spot the Girls on my list because that starts in a semi-documentary style, and you don't know whether you're watching quite a documentary, a slice of life, and then it moves to a more traditional dramatic narrative where it's very clear that you're watching a um, film with you know traditional formatting and traditional Mm. sequences traditional characters
3: this does the same it does definitely start off like it might be a documentary
0: before it starts taking leaps that could not happen in a documentary Yes. basically we've turned into Jafar Panahi fan club which we're not ashamed about so yeah that's happened
1: So we have an interesting situation here. Jafar Panahi Fan Club has rated three faces (laughs) uh, with 20 points, but... um, Despite not appearing on Glenn's uh, list. Not appearing on Glenn's list. um, I I saw this. I appreciate his technical skills as a filmmaker. I appreciate the grand narratives he's trying to tell with limited resources and within the confinement of a literal house arrest yep. in a country which he's, uh, is he's, very it would notoriously um clamps down it, on film production he's
3: pushed his house arrest further and further to see what he could get away with by r- r- uh receiving huge international acclaim each time he pushes the boundaries further until at this point he's not even you know while well, he's working with very limited resources um and uh almost non-existent crew by the by the look of things, um, he's not even adhering to the house arrest anymore. Yeah. He's just given up on that.
1: I guess my criticism in the film would be that the, for lack of a better term, the gimmick, on uh, which it's fa- founded in the opening sequence, um, it's not nearly as compelling as the panahi, for lack of a term, Better to character itself, and when this exhausts itself at a later stage in the film, the film comes much less engaging for me. I was much more interested in the first half than I was in the second half, and I think for that reason, it was able to stand so such just for me to make um, my top ten
3: list. Fair enough. So that concludes our top films of the year. Yes.
0: Yeah, but I guess Jafar Panahi fan club did take out number one spot, but the oh, film that know. was across the board... Number one would be uh, Number one would be bodied because that appeared in all three of our lists Yeah, high enough at 19 so, points.
3: D- depending on how you view things, <laughs> whether this is either which, three which faces or bodied.
0: Yeah, which we <laughs> were <laughs> okay with, that, well, actually. I'm so fine is, with that. Yeah. Is, is this
1: Film Fight Club or uh, Fanare Club? What, what, what are we going <laughs> to well, do? Look,
0: Bodied is
3: such a unusual and interesting and just damn entertaining film that has not received... The recognition it deserves. I think largely because it's a YouTube premium release and nobody cares about YouTube premium.
1: they bought this, they wanted this to be their coming out of party in terms of premium entertainment, and they're, they're very good with web series and TV they have like series. like a Cobra Kai thing. But this, yeah, and that had traction. This does not, I think, yeah. in part because saying a series is, uh, a film is produced by Eminem doesn't have the cachet I think it would have, 15 no, years ago. No, not anymore. And no. there's no one... I mean, this doesn't translate to the Disney world. Uh, there's no major... Star. The biggest star in this film is Anthony Michael Hall, who's in a minor mm-hmm. role.
0: Mm. My name is... My name Chica, Chica, is... My name is Adam Murgon. Adam Murgon. <laughs> yeah.
1: Really? Adam? That, that's, that's what you're calling us up? Adam? Sure. Okay. Um, I also think... I wonder what has more
3: repeat watching value. I think it's bodied. Um, well, I haven't seen Three Faces again, so yeah, I can't uh, really prob- prob- Actually, that. no,
0: actually. Because, like, bodied, actually... Because maybe it takes no prisoners and the first time you really kind of are shocked. So you do need a second viewing to kind of really take what it's trying to do and really get on board. Uh, Three Faces uh, may not have that entertaining value in the second time around, I will accept. But Bodied, I think, should be seen more. And from a mainstream thing, I think it does have more appeal because it's trying to do more fun things with it. And I think it actually, I was surprised that it, Three Faces at least one, you know, the best original screenplay. At, Three at Faces, on. though,
3: I f- is quite a warm and human film. I wouldn't say that it's a particularly
0: challenging hard watch. I know, I know but like if we're trying to go for the mass appeal, what could have yeah, more appeal? Yeah,
3: Bodied is a, um, at least in terms of narrative structure, commercial um, and
0: conventional film. Yeah. Which is it's why very I, unconventional which, in some other ways. Which, which, which is that. why I'm surprised that it didn't get more commercial, like, you know... Commercial, commercial direction, yeah. Yeah, or like, you know, it's people so viewing good. value. Yeah. It's honestly
3: just ahead it, of its time. And it,
1: but just in, purely in, it's ahead of its time in terms of it's them, what it's trying to do thematically, but also in terms of how it heavily it relies it's not a traditional musical but in so many senses it is and i think we're going to be seeing a lot more films like this in terms of the structure the, yeah the, the way that what um, it is trying to impress the
3: visual way that it tries to translate the world that young people live in now in terms of smartphone graphics and uh emojis and such is either, usually something uh that is pretty cringeworthy When it shows its face in Hollywood films, but here it just works completely.
0: Look, Glenn, I'm okay with musicals as long as they're not Anna and the Apocalypse. Oh, Oh, yeah, we're
3: going to talk about our worst films. Yeah, the worst films of the year. I'm going to say that my absolute worst is Anna and the Apocalypse, and I think Varad agrees. Is that right?
0: I do. I mean, it was. apocalyptic to say it's, to use a turn and phrase
1: how did you feel uh it's my second to worst film uh my number three uh number one for me is tower of bright day which that would be my second
0: worst film. Yeah, yeah. um,
1: i do have to note my third worst film which is no one else no, saw... wait,
0: actually i no it's uh, uh, I one day my... one day tower of bright day and and <laughs> and and, 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 and the no public.
3: i think a, a vigilante has to make its way in there i would uh, say my second worst of the year is a vigilante and the Third worst of the Arguably A Vigilante is the worst because it's just crass exploitation of current political attention to feminism. Um in order to basically just make a movie about you know A vigilante. It it's basically just torture porn. It's basically um, you know, bad, evil It it treats rapist uh, man abuses woman, and we watch her suffer. And now she gets to kill him. I mean, I mean, like, yeah, with but lots like, of screaming and um, and blood. It, compare that to some of it, the best films no of the year.
0: Compare that to some of the best films of the year, which look at trauma in, in very interesting and in layered interesting ways. ways. This is the other end of the spectrum, which has no sensitivity about sexual assault at all. This
3: this film it exploits I, I, people's sensitivity to sexual assault, food. which is even worse. Yeah, yeah. No, my
1: issue with this film was purely that it tried to strike a balance between a uh, typical. It, it wanted to go for the John Wick audience in that it was a film that sought and what films audiences like action movies where he is a character who has learned skills and is now lashing out and then pivots to I think what has been in some senses alluded to. Um, I did. It was one of the least interesting and least engaging films for the City Film Festival for me. Um, tower, the right. tower of Bright Day. I'll get to Tower of Bright Day in a second. Okay. Um, number three for me was the Mark Wahlberg, Ronda Rousey film, Mile 22, also with John Malkovich. This had this was set in Indokar City. It, they, <laughs> they, they, went, they took every step to say it wasn't Indonesia, but it, it was Indonesia. It had the brilliant actor from the Star of the Raid series. Ego always. Cool yes. And... I can't believe that they only had one sequence where he actually used these incredible martial arts skills. The biggest waste of him since The
3: Force Awakens. Oh, oh, God, yes, that's right.
1: Ronda Rousey um, also had nothing to do. Uh, it was an absolutely nonsensical plot. So
0: much like her you know, UFC career at the moment.
1: That's harsh, dude. The Holly Holm fight was brutal. Okay, moving on. And it was a terrible film. Um, so it really is going to come down to Tower of Bright Day and In the Apocalypse. Tower of the Bright Day was a Polish, a film? Polish film. Yeah, Polish film. It was about um, a a young woman who returns to a village uh, where her child is being taken care of by her family, but the child and the other people in the village are not aware that it is actually her child, and weird and fantastical things start to happen. Um, what sounds like a decent premise had absolutely no bearing on what was going on in and around town. It led to an absolutely absurd conclusion in the context of the goings-on. Um, the film had very few, if at all, redeeming qualities, and I think it still remains my worst of the year.
3: The problem with Tower of Bright Day is that it's completely empty. It, It's basically just fucking with you in terms of the build-up, the um, horror imagery that comes in. And I think it what it is leaving the audience to make something out of the puzzle of empty references, but at the end of the day, it's just empty posturing um there's no depth behind the imagery here um the way the it it goes from a Lars von trier um and as Thomas jensen esque you know Danish esque. Dogva, um, dogma, ninety-five esque family taking shots at each other in Steadicam—all those are old art house chestnuts kind of movie into um, a supernatural horror. And I think the, what the director was trying to go for is, um, you know, that a horror emerges from the secrets and the social, you know, the tension in the dynamics of the family. But the the big secret and what's going on in the family drama, are so tried. You've seen, you've seen it a million times before in serious artsy family dramas. And the horror leads nowhere. Like I was saying before, it, it leads you to draw all the conclusions yourself. Um, and it, it's pointing in religious directions, which I think are, are pretty much just there to raise a response. It's just a provocation. I will say that it's my number two as opposed to the worst movie of the year um, because I admired some of the technique. I thought at times there are some nice images in some of the horror sequences and some nice building up of atmosphere. But even during those sequences, I, I just thought... This is just empty. This is just leading nowhere. And at the end of the movie, it's the kind of thing where you know me and my girlfriend Chanel, you know, we just threw our hands up in the air. And when the ending rolled around, we're like, okay, still that's it. The energy it apocalypse. was nothing. No, I disagree. But for... yeah,
0: I mean, like, it, it depends. Like, uh, what you find to be more annoying? Or it's annoying more, to have somebody more, like more sneaking pointless. up behind
3: you and going rah. Again and again and again, and then it's like there's no payoff to that.
0: Like, you know, A, on one hand, you have a blatant exploitation of your sensitivities around, you know, very serious topics like A Vigilante, which is annoying in one sense. Uh, Or B, a film which is saying absolutely nothing about nothing, uh, which is Tower of Bright Day. But
3: the pretension, the way that it pretends that it's saying something important about um, about family or religion or you know the way it's, people raise their children or just anything um, and it's directed with so much self-importance it's so goddamn humorless and you have to have some substance if you're going to take on that approach another
0: film which kind of uh, trumpet your own seriousness you know? yeah another film which kind of felt more self-serious than it actually was which i felt was suffering from similar tropes was one day Oh god! You know, which is essentially <laughs> day. you know story of this mother uh, told through Sydney the course film Festival, of one day.
3: We we, uh, we have to say again, yeah. the Sydney Film Festival had the best and worst the best and films. Worst. The competition was really weak. I the mean, only good film, in my estimation, was Leaving a Trace, which was a r- yeah. great one. Um, How is it that most of our list is made up of Sydney Film? And this is the thing. And yet the competition was so goddamn awful. I haven't even mentioned there was another movie that similar to. Sugar. Oh it I, I didn't see well. Jack oh, that was that but was
0: that was horrible. another bad. one
3: daughter of mine really bad. I would that was irresponsible
0: sweet daughter of, okay daughter
3: of mine, I would rank alongside Tower of bright day and one day in terms of being <laughs> overcooked um family melodrama that leads nowhere and is uh confuses screaming matches. Um, and angry looks
0: for emotional
1: yeah.
3: depth
0: basically don't have day in your film title one day one day, day. One
3: day was actually day. one day i would say is not as bad as these hey, films one day, was, day just, was a
1: great movie man
3: <laughs> one day was just <laughs> one day was just dull one day, day was just underdeveloped <laughs> but um, i mean that yeah tower of bright <laughs> day man that was just goddamn awful. Right, but so now now as apocalypse. awful as Anna in the Apocalypse. Right, Anna in the opinion.
1: Apocalypse, we saw, we took Chris to see following a recording yeah. at the British Film Festival. I had Festival. never heard
3: of this film. I was like, all right, yeah. It is a story God
1: set damn. in Welsh town. <laughs> it is a zombie musical set during Christmas it's like... about a young woman called Anna who has to take on a zombie horde while singing Christmas carols okay, with her friends.
3: First of all, You really need to have a good reason if you're going to make another zombie film right now. And this film is just content to live in the shadow of Shaun of the Dead. Um, But it's... There are so many Edgar
0: Wright kind of cuts. cuts. Um, Yeah,
3: there's suddenly Shaun of the Dead-esque jump cuts. But in Edgar Wright's (laughs) aesthetic, that feels part and parcel. Whereas the rest of this film is so ineptly shot that they just really stand out like a sudden injection of energy into this just dull... Flat film. Actually, that's the reason, the main reason why I would say this is worse than Tower of Bright Day for me is that it was just so inept. Like, everything about it was bad. The cinematography was weirdly um, unsatisfying. Like, shots were either. Poorly framed, or you know, like there was too much headroom or um, too wide angle. It was the worst of Glee, but even worse than that. All the musical yeah, I stage sequences. The other thing is the
1: character arcs are terrible as well. All the se- all the musically staged sequences were completely unimaginative. The lyricisms, which were meant to inform us, the exposition dumps. Uh, you couldn't stand to enjoy them, and it was. As has been said, heads, parts of heads, were cut off in the shot, as you saw in the classroom sequences. Um, There are so many things that we talk about. It's really low budget, but not leaning into its budget, so it's cheap about this film but th- I've got to say the very worst thing the very worst thing about this was the casting of the headmaster a character oh, who really you really had to chew the scenery and he did not have the charisma he was a terrible actor and he's singing these sequences about how he just wants to kill people for no reason and it's painful it is probably the most painstaking sequence of any film I've seen this year he was
3: a character who was who was the villain because he was the villain and his motivation was I don't like people because I'm the villain and yeah. that's not the only terrible character arc in this film. There's also this the, the, guy who's the best friend slash love interest, which was also like yeah, such and, a pointless he thing. And a
1: lot of teenagers. There's a character,
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, really uncom- really discomforting to watch. There's a there's a character who um, is meant portrayed as the dickhead, but then because his he has. I can't remember was it like his dad abused him or something, or, or oh yeah, I mean, whatever like now he's everything sympathetic. Every,
0: everything is lazy and like you know. Anna gets and I guess like all of these him. characters are, are just so contemptible, really. But like, but also all what, of them are horrible. What, what some ha- are horrible. what I hate most about this movie is that this got actual release at Palace. Yeah, what the hell? And Dendi, you know? it, this played in you know? cinemas when the there's other, so other many fil- brilliant films. Other films we talked about were festival releases, so we can get that. We kind of get get some good. And some you know, Leave bad No ones. Trace was got about the same scale of
3: releases. Don't enter in the it, apocalypse. It, Maybe don't a don't make it your lot, Christmas actually. movie. People, they wanted it to be a Netflix Christmas movie. Yeah, I thought this movie is just like trying to jump on the algorithm. Like, did you like Glee? Did you like anything? Christmas? Did you like anything with zombies in it? This will come up in your recommendations.
1: And the reason I put it at number two rather than number one is that for all the faults of the screenplay, the act, the main actress, and yes, we know what she was saddled with, she was actually quite good. And that she was, was the
3: only decent person in the film.
1: And that's probably why they thought, okay, oh, decent, man, comedy film. Oh, there was comedy. <laughs> there, there, there was laughter. There was humor. Oh,
0: you know when oh, the, the the slow motion sequence with the oh, dad whoa, towards geez. the end. No, no, there's uh, the slow motion uh, go, sequence. Go, go! Well, oh yeah, there's a moment in the Anna. middle of this movie where they no. read out um
1: was the, the night Carol. before Christmas. I, it's so hard to watch, and then it
3: turns into know, funny jokes.
1: Like I don't think this is funny anymore. Why Yeah, yeah, are we yeah. Still doing the, this? There's oh like God.
3: the movie sets up sequences as like slapstick comedy. Well, it's meant to be the turning point where characters decide things are getting serious. It's just a, like a jumbled mess in every aspect. It's this is a. You know. And people liked it. It's got a Did decent people- Metacritic
0: score, you know, Jesus. People just, anyway. okay, guys, watch Jafar Panahi. I mean, normally,
3: I try not to get angry about people <laughs> liking things. <laughs> yeah, normally, yeah. I try not to get angry about people liking to- things that I don't, or vice versa, but this one is like, it's just so bad. The response to and the Apocalypse crosses go line. watch Three Faces. If you liked that- Anna in the Apocalypse, maybe you should try, you know, 96% match Three Faces. Yeah? I-, I think, look, I, I don't know, but yeah. Bharat... You're, you, may, you may be the side of here. You saw Tower of
1: Bright Day. Yeah. Um, Anna in the Apocalypse or Tower of Bright Day. What was the worst film of or something else. Or something else.
0: Look, for me, it's between One Day, Tower of Bright Day. You really day. think One Day was that bad? I, I thought it was bad, I really think it was that bad. Uh, you didn't between, see Daughter of Mine, man. No, thank, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, Daughter of Mine will see that movie. Ever. <laughs> 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 but, like, you know, it's between that, it's between Tower of Bright Day, it's been One Day or Anna and the Apocalypse, uh, you know, these are the three. Uh, but uh, if I have to really, really go for it, I would say uh, Tower of Bright Day is worse than Anna and the Apocalypse, mainly because what I hate more than bad execution and bad I'm filming so- is pretension. And It is film. super pretentious. Yeah,
3: Anna and the Apocalypse, for all its faults, is not very pretentious at all.
0: No, no, but. No, what, they, they were
3: just. But it's the, the opposite. It's, it's just lazy. Like I said, it's, it's Netflix um, algorithm jamming. The,
0: the thing I hate about Anna the Cop- Apocalypse is basically more the people who seem to love it. Because I feel <laughs> we like. We hate you, people, <laughs> listeners. It's you. If, if you've seen this
1: film and you liked it, we no, hate you. know that we're judging you right
0: now. <laughs> because, oh, like, I, do, I don't really hate the film that much because the film has nothing to say. But I do hate the people because by kind of liking this film, I'm just like. You're which- what's
3: wrong with our culture yeah,
0: exactly well that's true but also like which planet do you come from like what is your idea of a good movie just change your bloody taste so, look, Wales have had a great year in terms of the rugby, winning the Six
1: Nations, but in terms of film, it's been really, really bad. But Tower Poland's no, had a r- worse I don't, time. I'd
3: say we've had actually a really good year. It's just that the, the bad movies stand out even more. Yeah.
1: So, Poland, look, if you're going to see a Polish film, make it Cold War and not Tower I Right w- there. I wish
3: we were just more edgy right now. I wish that we were like, yeah, the worst movie of the year is Black Panther or something like that.
0: To yeah, just the, really rough okay, people back this <laughs> film, no one's seen. The, 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 kind of, the kind of hot take I would give... I would say Black Klansman was pretty much. Black Clansman was, was a really bad, bad oh. really bad movie that I would say everyone's been going gaga I'm, about. I thought it was good. I think it's overrated. Yeah, but also, like, you know. Sp- If Spike Lee was ever to win an Oscar, I would not think Black Landsman should be the movie that he should win it for. Spike Lee, oh my God. He tried to walk out during the... Yeah, when uh, Green Book is not as bad as people make it out to be, which is also surprising. uh, But it's still bad. Bohemian Rhapsody, yes. That would feature in one of my worst uh, films of the year, to be honest.
1: So you mean Walk Hard, the Freddie Mercury story.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's not just that. It's just like... I don't know why the movie existed to be to oh, begin it, it with. Oh, it doesn't
1: need to. And, and now there's this motley crew biopic, and I just, I just the dirt. I just don't want to see. It looks exactly in every respect. It's been reviewed in every respect, like *Human Rhapsody*. I just hope beyond hope. I'm a big Elton John fan, and I'm a movie fan. And it's and *Rocket Man*. Please don't make it about him, yeah. even though I know and I love Elton. But it is produced by him, so I hope it's not a hagiography. It's a, yeah. produced by his company. It, it will uh, be. I hope Just it's not so a hagiography. It will be this, it'll be really exactly what
3: Bohemian Rhapsody yeah. was to Queen, which is like an ad. Talking about what was the last like actual keep music by, like one keep that, that the Spotify streams going. Yeah. The, Look, the last good one. Yeah. Seriously. Uh,
1: mm. uh the coal miner's <laughs> daughter. <laughs> <laughs> um, Look, think, uh,
0: talking about. hagiography. I liked Walk the Line. line. I did. Yeah. Walk the Line was pretty good. Talking about hagiographies, uh, it's election season in India and there are one, two, three, about four movies on... PM Narendra Modi coming out before the election as propaganda a blatant propaganda so I, I am so, kind so, of some kind views of on that for us some kind of uh, of views on the Modi <laughs> government <laughs> he,
1: he was here he came when he got elected a few years ago oh
0: yeah yeah the,
3: that those, that those that was... who are listening at home might have remembered that we said we'd do a spoiler discussion of us but oh. we're nearing <laughs> we've gone so long in this epic length ep, I, I think let's just get it over with <laughs> quickly get, right? okay, spoil, okay. spoilers 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 Us! no we have
1: to Varat, are you happy with us to spoil us?
3: We'll just kind of spend a couple of minutes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, he, yeah, he knows gonna... us inside out by now, so I mean, yeah. what's there left to spoil about us? Yeah, okay.
0: I'm going to get uh. out. <laughs> <laughs> nice,
3: nice. <laughs> well, actually, that was that was that was your best that pun, was, Bravo! Yeah, that was the best of the episode. <laughs> yeah. we should do um, we should do the t- film Fight Club best puns of the year. We, should, I, I know, we should just have had someone it. in the corner we've, we've and just like taking notes. whenever Varat says it. something, and then
1: yeah, yeah. Um, so. All right. So, spoilers. So the, the 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 twist in Us is that the young Adelaide who goes down to the Mirror Hall um, is she actually... sees the
3: version of herself and then <gasps> cut away at the beginning of the movie. It turns out that she actually switched places with her double. So essentially, the whole movie is the revenge plot of a person from the real world who was taken down into the underworld to um, and then. Created an elaborate revenge plot based around a uh, hands across America of all things, <laughs> which
1: at least until you said the hands across America bit is really, really cool. And I would love to have seen the dynamic between the two Adelaide and the non Adelaide ad- played out throughout the second yeah, half of the film as they inc-
3: fought. Incredibly obvious because in movies about doubles, questions of who is the real and who is the double are such an obvious thing. And so, we see so ma- my mind I think is already primed to read things in that direction and on top of that it's super telegraphed so as soon as we started revisiting that moment I was, I was thinking okay here's the moment where we reveal she's a double but instead it comes at the end of the movie and it's built up as like a huge reveal and it's not so yeah so it but, lands with a thud. But, but if it had come at that moment where I thought that it would wouldn't it have been actually interesting like it would have added some gravitas to the fight and also just the the um, conflict between these two characters you and know, if with the acknowledgement of "I am actually you," you stole this from me, oh, would have bef- actually been before dramatically the interesting. Classroom
1: scene, absolutely. But the reason it got telegraphed is that we saw all, but almost all, of what we see about that sequence at the very beginning of the film, mm. which to very, very little more. And as the as the actual Adelaide starts to the say, the character being and silent that, when that, she when she emerges is another giveaway. It's been so telegraphed. Oh no, you mean non silent, whereas everyone else can't.
3: No, I mean when, when as a child she afterwards they're saying, oh, is she does she have PTSD? She's so silent. Right. Yeah. Although that was uh, repeating
1: that kind of gave it away. Yeah. Um, and there's a great sequence, the very last in the film, where she smiles at her son as her son inexplicably figures it out, and I wanted to see more of that version of Adelaide I wanted to see more of the underworld Adelaide come to life as she begins to defend her family who over the course of 30 years she has grown to empathize with that's an interesting story Why it's more interesting than the Hands Across America montage we got at the end why weren't we treated to that what's we the Hands that? Across oh. so okay so Hands Across America in 1986 was a big event where people literally put Hands Across America not all the way across America as was publicized but part
3: of the way across America literally held hands, Holding hands. to alleviate hunger in America and you donate money to it or something like yeah. that it's the, like a, some kind of charity like band-aid <laughs> it's like yeah. some kind the of point, w- th- th- there's
1: a know. Simpsons bit about it too the point the film was making is that it didn't actually work first because it didn't alleviate hunger secondly because it couldn't actually join hands across America the irony is that when you see all the pokes in red jumpsuits hold hands they actually yeah. managed to do it and so actually go well across America. basically
3: the reason why yeah basically the reason why the characters wear red jumpsuits is so that they can reenact the symbol the imagery of hands across America which was like a blue background with red figures holding hands like that was the logo. That's the re. And at the beginning of the movie, you see as a child, Adelaide watching a TV ad for Hands Across America. So, which is shortly before oh, yes. she gets the, taken underground. The
1: voiceover: "Here's what Hands Across America is. Here's how it's sweet relevance. The movie. So much of this, you can't just dump <clears> exposition. <throat> it's it, everything becomes telegraphed. It's it's what yeah. Get Out managed to do so well. What this film did so poorly.
3: But if this had been revealed earlier, I, I think it would have added more to the film in. One of the areas I was giving it the most criticism earlier, which is as a social critique, because it it would have been really like, you see these people as disgusting, but it is it could be you. You know, all it takes is like a little twist of fate and you could be one of the under people. It had so much more, um, to, more to think about, which is why I think it would have registered more if it had been revealed earlier on in the narrative. And it also would have... Um, Provided more context to the anger. It, you know, it's, it's not just about... It's less about where the scary horror movie equivalents of you as you took this from me.
1: Yeah. It also would have been more interesting to see the dynamic play out with the son. If he had been run away instead of being taken, if we'd seen him begin to distrust Adelaide. Um, if we saw the dynamic between the mother yeah, and father. there's so much There's, there's no explore. investment actually in the dynamic between the mother and father in the film. Uh, The Hands Across America element, look, it's such a huge outlandish thing and we see this giant subterranean underground. I referred earlier to Metropolis. It's basically that. Um, That's not something you can... And, you know, the whole Zoltar sequence, it's it's essentially... It's like Zoltar from Big. Zoltar from Big. Um, You can't just jump into something like that as they do in the last 20 minutes of the film. No. You have to build it up throughout the entire narrative. Um, Get Out jumped in the last half hour to this brain surgery element again. That didn't take a big leap... Of faith, a big leap in our imagination, and this did. This was a bridge, many, many bridges too far.
3: To flesh out what I was saying earlier on about how outlandish this is, uh, now that we're allowed to spoil it, and I can't, don't just have to (laughs) speak in vague terms. All right, so there's this underground world where people are mystically tethered to the people above ground. So we have to believe that essentially there's um, that America is but you know doesn't just have some mysterious tunnels but basically all of america is mysterious tunnels that's why i think um speaking about the weird place this sits between magical realist um allegory and um realism it shouldn't have opened up with uh with on screen text talking about the tunnels with um, below America, because that makes you start to think. Hang on, I don't think there's that ma- many tunnels for there to be this kind of society. Never tunnel cards. But if you, if but that is asking you to read it as if it's a literal thing, adhering to real life rules, as you know, referencing the real life tunnels that exist within America. And this clearly can't take place. You know, this is a, this is a fantasy world, right? Um, but then the sci-fi element it alluded to is it says something about how you know we were created below the surface, maybe to control you people from up above. That's interesting. If you're going to drop you, a detail like either leave these people this? as as we yeah, know. who did this and why and and how can you control people above from an underclass? That seems like it, actually I would say that confuses the metaphor that it seems like the movie is going for about where Americans were the underclass because if the, you I would have thought that um it's the upper class are trying to control the people underground, right? That, but this line that's dropped in says that the people below ground were created in order to control the people above ground. But there was a mistake. Huh? Or, oh, so how did uh, like, that's, that's been what I
1: forever, mean but how did Adelaide find out about all this when it's just been abandoned?
3: Yeah, exactly. Maybe maybe it's a. I was going to say maybe it's a story that's been told but no, it hasn't been. So is that just her speculative theory? And if it is, yeah, it contradicts this movie as a social metaphor. Like, in what way uh, were the poor people of America created in order to control the the rich people? That makes no sense. It's more like rich people from above, you know, control. I I would have thought, you know, if this was to go in a sci-fi direction of we were created, we were clones or something. Yeah, they allude to these people being clones, Um, maybe as a food source or something. I don't know. I'm just spitballing an idea, but something to suggest that their lives are lives of oppression to the people from below ground. Everything about this movie seems poorly thought out and self- contradictory of its own internal logic and of any t- message it seems to be going for. If, if you want
1: an interesting take on how the story could have developed and how these scenes be been handled much better, what's the race in Doctor Who that live subterranean below the ground? They're not aliens, but they've always just lived. Um, they came back. They're, they're historic villains, but they came back in the um, Tenant, no, Sorry, the Matt Smith era in the Amy era and that was interesting because they say we've lived here as long as you have we share this world with you we share your resources and now we need to come towards the light mm. and that handle has always handled that theme much better um, certainly H.G. Wells is the time machine managed in quite an interesting way mm. uh, this did not, it just threw these ideas at you hoping they would all stick. Peel has these grandiose notions and they're really, really interesting. If he'd gone for an ultra realistic or completely unrealistic um semblance completely world, like poetic that, would, that would have worked. World, yeah. Um having but if it was a contained if if the whole thing was contained conspiracy it wasn't literally across America, maybe But he tried to have it both ends of the ends, and it did not gel.
3: There's a lot of things within this movie that seem like they're just there because Jordan Peele thought they would be cool or scary, like the rabbits, which are barely relevant, yet the movie spends a lot of time laboring over that imagery. The favorite that's how you (laughs) you deploy rabbits. Um, The red jumpsuits and the scissors. It's a dumb thing to be wondering about because it's totally beside the point, but I'm just left thinking how did they mass produce these things underground? No, um, the, the and because actually... the movie sort of, as I was saying before, seems to push into this is a, a li- this is literal, and yet in other ways is just completely poetic and divorced from reality. You can't no, I'm go, gonna... bo- go both ways. All right.
1: I'm going to give him credit for this is for a few <coughs> reasons. Number one, um, the synergy of two identical halves coming together to destroy... Uh, which is what scissors are, is really interesting. Number two, the frequent recurring motif throughout the film is number eleven, which is mirrored by the scissors. Um, the Bible what does verse, the eleven mean? All right, there's there's a lot. Well, one one two identical parts um, I, I, mirror I get images. That it, yeah. Um The eleven eleven Bible verse, which is about we will wreak a terrible punishment upon you. Hmm. Uh, there's there's but, incredible. There, there's, there's quite interesting consistent symbolism in this film, which I did appreciate. These
3: film these characters are so unsympathetic because they want to kill because they're monsters essentially you know like yes they um yes they have reason to feel angry but do they actually have any reason to feel angry to the people they're tethered to who had no idea of their existence like this if well, they're the movie had been su- following Adelaide if the movie had suggested some kind of psychic link or, uh, some kind of way that um I guess I guess you can say that what was done to Adelaide is the broad metaphor, but then that makes this whole thing about one person as opposed to being a, about what it seems to want to become about at the end of the film, which is people taking back America. As she says, she says, it's not just I'm an American, it's we're Americans, and the final images are of an America that's been taken by these people in a show of unity. So if it had suggested some kind of psychic link between the people above and below ground... Then I think it would have been more complicated in terms of our sympathy for the the tethered people, the below ground people, in um, giving them re- uh, reason to be angry and s- complicating the dynamics by making the people above ground culpable in some way. Um, as but it is,
1: is people don't know. Neither yeah, but, neither but knows. Everyone,
3: but the people above ground are basically all innocents. You know, like they, they you. The way that the metaphor in this film works isn't fleshed out enough for there to be some kind of whole, you know, idea of holy justice being carried out, which I think would have been way more interesting, a movie where I could on some level... <coughs> it's see few, these, It's too big a logical league. Like, yeah, if I could see these people not just as like horror movie screeching creatures but as actually justified in some way in their anger. But it seems within the law of this film, um, when she says that we were created and tethered, that the people they should be angry at other people who created them not at their doubles above ground it's just it's just we are angry at you because you had privileges but um that metaphor falls apart as a metaphor for the social class when um it it's not that we're turning a blind eye to the doubles uh, or to talk about that in real life terms it's not that we're turning a blind eye enjoying our privileges and ignoring the poor people which i think is would make sense as a metaphor. It's that we literally didn't know that they existed until they come to us and kill us. So it's just cruel as opposed to complex or saying anything interesting about society.
1: Well, it's interesting all the Prince and Pauper tales that you've seen envelop media throughout the centuries where a character who's who are identical... Uh, lead least two different lives. You look at the man in the iron mask. Um, look at the episode of Star Trek where Riker discovers he has a doppelganger who is exactly him but who has not been able to advance to the same extent. Mm. And in all these circumstances, one either the character who is of the lower class or worse off um, seeks either to proactively or deceptively advance, or the character who is more well-off has an opportunity to try and right, wrong, or learn of the other circumstance. No, that <coughs> isn't possible here. No one... Um, the, the, the the people underground don't have the agency, the people above ground, all the people below ground have the knowledge. Yep. So there's no ability to, uh, for development from any of these characters.
3: Yeah, I think the film would have worked better if with just this metaphor if it were simply about the force of pure evil you know just a a fantasy of pure evil coming to to take us some kind of anxiety about evil lurking underneath the surface um i i actually i would love if this were a well-developed social metaphor but there simply isn't enough there for it to work on that level
1: so that is our spoiler discussion of us um is in cinema's Tomorrow, if you have not – well, we hope you saw the film or if you're planning on seeing the film, I hope you enjoyed the discussion. It's one that I think – I think it's a film that we will be talking about and reflecting on uh, regardless of how much we liked and disliked it for quite a while.
3: Jordan Peel has entered that point in pop culture now. Yeah.
1: Yes. Good for him. What he's what he's done, the career he's built, it's incredible. D-
3: this just in, he, he made a comment um, saying that um, – you know, he's never going to have a white dude lead in his films going forward because he says there are so many others of those films and I have the opportunity to do something different and good for him. One of the most interesting things about this film is that it has a black family cast in a role of just every man character's everyday family. And no
1: attention is explicitly drawn to their race throughout yeah, the which,
3: film. Yeah, um, which, you know, he's right. Why not? Yeah. yeah,
1: And they
3: were great. Yeah. All the,
1: all the forms were I really, I'm it, younger. It, My it, God.
3: The most interesting thing about this film politically is that he casts a black family without making a big deal about the fact that they're black. That they are cast just as people. And that's just accepted by the other characters within the story.
1: Yeah. So that is Us. Um, Fox has still been taken over by Disney. Sadly, that has
3: not changed
1: since we started recording. And our top films of the year, well, I guess it's a well, look, Body of the Three Faces, depending on how you see it and our bottom film Tower of Bright Day, closely, closely, ever so closely followed by Anna in the Apocalypse. It's been a long one. Thanks for it's, sticking with us to the end. Thanks for listening. Uh, we will be back next week. Have a wonderful night. Enjoy. Try to enjoy movies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, yeah. I, 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 I will. I promise. I
0: promise. I will.
1: <laughs> Have a good night. All
0: right. Good night.